Hey everyone, um, welcome to the Mary Media Podcast today. Today we're joined by uh, Kushal Mera of the Charavaka Podcast, um, which is actually a fantastic podcast. Uh, Kushal runs uh, <clears throat> basically a podcast in which he discusses both his background in Indian philosophy and uh, understanding the Charavaka school. But most interestingly, he delves into the deep topics I think that um, much of Indian media and society doesn't cover. Um, is the politics from a very Indic angle, and he takes on the assumptions and the issues that are brought up by Western media, Marxism, um, part of neo, neo uh, I mean, uh, neo, neoliberalism, and also uh, postmodernism, which actually it's interesting because uh, when I spent my time in India, I didn't get much of any of this in the in the popular media. So it's good to have someone like Kushal bring this these issues to the forefront. Um, Kushal, uh, welcome to the podcast. Um, and if you wouldn't mind, namaste. Um, if you wouldn't mind giving like a brief background, brief background on yourself and your podcast and the work you've done. Namaste, Mukund. And first of all, thanks a lot for inviting me on your podcast. Uh, it's been a lot of fun. I actually saw a couple of episodes of yours where I actually enjoyed it. So it's good to see more and more Indians joining the podcast sphere because I think we need at least fifteen to twenty good good podcasts. Uh, as far as you know, the Indians are concerned, and yeah. we need them to you know spread around globally. So I was really happy that you've also started podcasting. So as far as I'm concerned, well, uh, I think two and a half years ago, I I mean I've been someone who's always been a person who likes to read a lot and think a lot. So it, it starts from there. You you start reading a lot, you think a lot, and then you watch mainstream media channels in India, and then you just see unadulterated garbage. So. <laughs> So it starts from five years ago. I, I basically five or six years ago, I made this decision that I'm just not going to watch any news channel and not read most newspapers. Like I, I literally don't pick up a newspaper anymore and I don't watch any news channel debates. I selectively follow people on Twitter, try okay. and engage. And, and I have made it a point that I try and follow different kinds of people. I gather my news from there. And, and I don't believe in following the current affairs beyond a certain point. It, it, might, it sounds very crazy. Uh, I, I, I would rather spend my time reading books than reading newspapers because uh, I think I gain something more substantive when I read a book in comparison to, a, say, a newspaper because then I don't know what the angle of the reporter is. And, and, and this is nothing to do with anything, any left-wing or a non-left reporter in right. India. I just believe everybody has an angle. Nobody likes to disclose it. I think the non-left in India is very open about that, that they are very open about their ideology. The left globally have found that they are not. So 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 that's where I, I got a lot of spare time. So once you don't have, you know, wasting your time. And, and then I'm just a weird character. Like uh, I'm one of those rare... Indians who doesn't watch movies, so that also adds to your spare time. So I don't watch Indian cinema at all. So at if all. you ask me any question about Indian cinema, I'll know the names, but I'll not know the pictures. I'm I'm not seen a lot of movies either. So I I literally just focused on the book, and then I start developing ideas, and then it it came to a time where basically my wife said, you know, you just spend too much time talking to me. I think you should talk to the world. And it That's literally the first time started you heard off. wife say that. <laughs> yeah. So, so it was like, you know, no, no, because I would run my ideas through her. And then beyond the point, it's like, you know what? Just talk to the world. And, and, and I think in my case, the tipping point was uh, for me uh, in a socio-political and uh, sphere was the 2010 Anna Hazare India Against Corruption movement, yes. which, which basically triggered it for me. And 
where I literally found an avenue there. So I went and met this guy who's now left the Aam Admi Party. And he used to be the starting guy. I mean, I was along with him, one of the first few people who started India Against Corruption in Mumbai. That guy's name was Mayank Gandhi. I remember going with a friend called Yomesh Panchmati and we had met Mayank Gandhi. And then we were like, you know, we want to join forces with you guys. And then we built that. And I left that in six months because I immediately realized that these guys are totally off. Well, Mayank Gandhi is a nice guy. I still maintain that. But yeah. Kejriwal was a bit of a problem. From there, I, I joined Friends of BJP. And Friends of BJP basically was for professionals or entrepreneurs who want to be associated with the BJP without being associated with the BJP. It was like that. So from there, it works on that. And then you start doing things. And then I left Friends of BJP too, because that was also, I mean, to me, it didn't make any sense. Sure. And, and then I, I just, you know, happened to explore podcasting. Yeah, it was like podcasts were something very interesting where what, what got me attracted to podcasting was basically... It is the complete opposite of what happens in mainstream media. Sure. You have a point and you can spend 30 minutes on that little point and you can explore it. There is no exploration in mainstream media. Even, you know, honestly, when you watch a documentary, a Netflix documentary, a Netflix documentary is like 1500 hours of raw footage. Right. And then they decide that you deserve to see an hour, hour and a half of this. So you actually don't get the complete picture. Right. What I decided was, and then you just, suddenly come across uh, i remember the first podcast i discovered was uh, joe rogan and adam carolla so yeah. these two guys were the ones i discovered and then and then from one to the other and just two and a half years ago then i was like you know what nobody in the indian scene on what i call the non-left there is right. a left wing in india for sure there is a proper left wing in india which behaves just like the left wing globally there are people who dislike them now they are of different shades. There are like proper Hindu traditionalists. There are proper Hindu ritualists. There are yeah. Hindus on paper. And then there are people like me. So what I like to bracket them as the people who are not the left. Sure. And that's the only way I'd like to classify them. So I was like, there is nobody in this space. Literally before I started, nobody was doing, I'm not talking about a political affairs podcast. I'm talking about a podcast where people have discussions. Right. Like discussions and they, they just look at one idea and then they talk about it for like an hour or an hour and a half. And then I was like, I'll start it. And then I just started it. And now I'm, I'm, I'm actually very happy. There are a few others who are doing this. It's like, it's my podcast is there. There's Sham Sharma who does That's a right. fantastic job. You're there. Mindmakers is there as a podcast, but they are a strictly news and views podcast. Right. So they are in a completely different category. But if you were to talk about like podcasts that discuss issues, ideas, concepts, actually now there's the, here's the third one I, I know personally. I think Pragata had, had one, right? Didn't they have something called uh, uh, something East 182 or something like that? I forget. They had a few episodes. Yeah, they had a few episodes. But the thing is with podcasting, you have to be continuous and yeah. you have to be consistent. Otherwise, it's not a podcast. I right. mean, Upward is there. They're creating short videos and they're doing a fantastic job That's too. Right. Where, yeah, they're doing an amazing job too. So there are different people who are doing that job. And there are a lot of political shows like Aaj Ki Taza Khabar and stuff like that. But when I'm talking about podcasting, I'm talking about a completely different genre. Strictly long form. Right. Minimum 45 minutes to maximum three hours. Depends on your capacity. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it depends on your capacity. And you just don't leave the focus. So yeah, it's like, a, you know, a sort of a churning of ideas. And when you and they and the rule is you don't cut each other off. You you should have podcasting is meant for people who have the patience. So I, I, I actually was yearning to that. And also the reason I started was 
I came across a lot of people online and offline which I found them to be interesting and I found their ideas not getting due coverage in mainstream media. Right. So a lot of people who have come on my podcast, they also go on mainstream media in India. Like I've had Abhijit Ayer, Anand Ranganathan, Makran Paranjpe and you know, yeah, yeah, you gotta, you most gotta, of these people you find them on mainstream media in India, most of them. But yeah. I can guarantee you there's not been even one case where they've come on my podcast and they have said that no, they didn't have fun. They always come back because they're like, you know, this is such a unique experience that you don't cut us off. Right. So in that sense, that's where my my whole aim was. I wanted to create a platform where, and I know it's very new for India, this whole long form style where, sure. and, and I, I only feedback I get is now of two kinds. There is this regular listener or viewer because I do it on YouTube and then make it an audio. Initially, yeah. it was strictly audio, and then I went on went on YouTube. So now there are two kinds of people: one who are constantly complaining that why is it so long cut the videos, make them short. And I'm not going to do that. I'm going to stick to the long form. Yeah. If you want to cut my videos, you cut it. Just email me. Can I have your permission and spread it around? I don't care, but I'm not going to do it. And second is there are people now who are so addicted to this that sometimes I get complaints where why was it one hour? Why not one and a half hour? I was like, man, I can't please all of you. So I'm just going to do what I feel is right. And also I was interested in talking to people. I yeah. wanted to know their views. Like I'll give you an example. I, I had Nitin Sridhar on my podcast. Yeah. I think on a scale of 1 to 100, I'll disagree with Nitin on 95 things. Sure. But Nitin had more fun talking to me than most people because he's like, I know you don't agree with me. You still didn't cut me off. You still did not make any snide remarks. You were not disrespectful. And I knew you don't agree with me. You still gave me a platform to speak my mind. He's like, I can respect that. And, and sure. that's what I want to do. I mean, I don't agree with probably 70% of the guests that come on my podcast. I don't agree with them. Nothing says you Yeah, but my whole point is, can we have civil discourse? Yeah. And and I and I say this with full responsibility. I know it's going to sound very, you know, snide or whatever, but I think there is a lack of civil discourse in India between us Indians. We have lost the art of civil discourse because and and I mean and the epitome of that is Arnab Goswami and his rise in India. <laughs> India wants to know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he just keeps shouting and nobody speaks. There are 18 people on the screen, a screen and then, then the answer is the market decides. Well, obviously, the market decides, but the market cannot be the gauge of everything in life. That's right. I'm not saying Arnav Goswami needs to shut down. All power to him. He should grow a thousand times more. I wish he, yeah. him all the best. But my point is there has to be a space where people want civil discourse. So to finally end this answer, this is the reason I started podcasting. That was the reason I wanted to create a platform where right. ideas get discussed without uh, any, you know, preconceived biases or notions about the other side. Like when I talk to Nitin Sridhar, I assume he's a nice human being and he has good intentions in his heart. I'm just using right. Nitin as an example. Or when I call Makran Paranjpe or, or when I chat with anybody for that matter, like I chat with atheists or ex-Muslims. Now, I don't classify myself as an atheist. Right. I, I might have nine out of 10 characteristics of an atheist. I still refuse that label personally. Sure. I don't like that label. I don't even like to call myself a Hindu atheist. I, I reject that label too. But my whole point is when I call an ex-Muslim and I want to discuss with them, I want to listen to them. I want to understand yeah. their journey. And, and that's the reason why I podcast at least. Right. I mean... So, I mean, you brought up some good points there, which is like, I think, first of all, it's not just the Indian issue of, of civil discourse, right? I think this is a, one of the big problems is 
the mass nature of media today outside of like the the niches we're doing which is like our own our own media kind of world mass media tends to be very short clippy click click baby kind of work right you just want you to read something really quick so they get the viewers followership and not really engage in these topics uh, and the west has i mean not the west completely but america has some good stuff uh, here and there like you mentioned joe rogan sam harris has a great one um you know even jordan peterson has a has has his podcast is decently solid and there's a few 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 more that are long form and you spend a lot of time on stuff this is yours i think actually in india is one of the few i've actually found that has the long form and is i mean in english i think there's quite a few in hindi that maybe i'm not sure because i i'm not really i i do know hindi but i don't really listen to like hindi podcasts per se um but the problem i think in india is things are so politicized it's difficult to have a conversation with people without people getting riled up crazy angry um because i, I feel like i and 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 you can correct me if i'm wrong i part of me feels like by calling it the left we're doing it the disservice of saying that there's something unique inly indian about it that makes it the left it's not the left it's i think it's just western aping of western marxism and western uh liberal thought but without any of the proper foundations and buttress of it it's kind of like whatever happens in in the west has been taken piecemeal and, and moved into india without understanding what how it applies to indian society and i think part of that reels because they don't have that functional foundation you tend to be much more much more attached to the conclusions than you are to the reasoning of how you got there but i partially agree with it but see the left wing in india genuinely believes in those value systems they genuinely believe in those things that they claim about a lot of times people you know they come across as they think that they're just blindly aping them i don't think so they're blindly aping them i mean that we have to give them credit they're not you know automatons they 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 have rationalized their position in their own unique way they have rationalized it you can question their rationalization or you can debate the degree of uh, thought that went behind that rationalization sure but i'm um, indian marxists are genuinely marxists no, no i'm not look at that word in the yeah but i'm not saying there are like for example secularism that concept of secularism that india loves to throw around do they even understand how it came the, the history of secularism why it was so important in the west versus oh, yeah. why you can't take it in india in the same context I mean this is what I mean is you can't you take an idea and ideas are built not in vacuums right inherently we know ideas are built within a certain social confine of whether it's religion politics economics there's so many different factors that create a, a particular idea and if that idea is taken just supplanted and moved into another civilization or community that doesn't have the same prerequisites or or understanding of how the idea came there'll be a problem in how you try to integrate it. And this is where I think for example secularism in India is so problematic because you have the secularism that's somewhat trying to be western secularism but it's trying to reshape it in India in the 1920th century without understanding the historic idea of secularism within India before. I think in the case of Indian secularism it is a classic case of people knowing what it stands for and still not following it because it doesn't suit their political and identity political identity politics goals 
I think secularism in India is the most bastardized version of secularism in the globe. Yeah. I think there is no secular. I mean, I think we should not call it secularism. What what we call secularism is India. In India, is the worst form of identity politics where every single political outfit, which includes the BJP, sure, is 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 playing identity politics. And you know what the irony is? If somebody even did a cursory reading of Indian philosophy, whether Astic or Nastic. Mm-hmm. it is the most you know individualistic journey what oh, you yeah. can have see buddha's nirvana was his nirvana it was not the whole of humanity's nirvana mahavir's moksha was his moksha you know shankara's enlightenment or shankara's uh, siddhi was his siddhi it was not the siddhi of his followers right so if you have to attain buddhahood or if you have to attain the the level of the jain tinthakaras yeah. if you have to attain keval gyan or yeah. if you have to uh, understand brahman you have to follow certain steps now you can use the steps of the enlightened masters but the point is the effort is still yours it's not like you know i am a, a a christian and i am about to die but suddenly a father comes to me and says do you believe in jesus christ oh yes i do yeah. whole, my whole life i did not but yeah. suddenly i before on my deathbed i said oh i believe in jesus christ and i'm going to heaven what the hell is that i mean that's not it makes no sense it, it, i mean it, it doesn't make sense within their within our framework but it makes sense in theirs right yeah but look at it from my point of view is that for a society that has such an individualistic philosophy at a personal level at a spiritual level we are very individualistic at a cultural level we are very collective yeah so indians are very complicated people what happens is a lot of western literature says that protestant work ethic western societies are individualistic and mm-hmm. eastern societies are collective societies i think they have misunderstood what eastern societies are eastern sure. societies are divided at the lokic and parmarthic level now mm-hmm. a person like me who denies the parmarthic level is a completely separate issue and we can discuss that later on but my point is that they could not understand how indians function as a society they did not understand the indian psyche that indians right. are actually very individualistic but they understand the value of collectivism in many places and then they they tried to create a balance between both so what they did was they read confucius where everything was about harmony and mm-hmm. everything was about filial piety and everything is about listen to your elders to the extent of bowing down to them no matter what and then they kind of superimposed that confucian ethic right. to the entire asian continent and that's what has happened in the case of india now funnily enough they have read buddhism they have kind of understood buddhism i don't know why still hinduism does not does not get that seat at the table as if you know i mean 60% 70% of buddhism with due respects to the buddha who i love and i have his portrait and uh, you know murti in my room i mean 70% of it is kind of hinduism <laughs> yeah i mean you're right so there's a couple points right so i think uh one of the reasons why buddhism tends to be seen as this i guess enlightened modern kind of not not religion but way of life or psycholo- uh, psychological process is actually um i don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to 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 speak to joy dibhakti or vishwa uh, adlukuri um they they write and they take part of this from uh balagangadhar the idea that um Buddhism was seen in in the context of of uh, the Germanic interpretations of our texts, which were the primary people that came out as being like the Protestant Protestantism 
of 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 of, of India, right? So the the Hindus end up becoming like either the Catholics or the Jews, the people that we, they had to change from. So Hinduism, I think, even today is seen as this like this fixed monolithic kind of entity that exists somewhere out there in which Buddhism evolved from and broke free of its chains. But like you said, 70, even 80% of Buddhism is Hinduism. Because if people if people don't recognize this, it's, Buddhism was really like a particular practice for shamanas, for people that had wanted to walk away from society, right? Their, yes. their, their societal practices were through and through Hindu. They will still yag, they will still do yagnas. You still see like you know a Tibetan Buddhist Buddhist in Japan doing yagnas using Sanskrit, right? Do, doing their own version of the uh, of the havens and stuff. But their entire social status, the the Varna system was still in place amongst the the Buddhists. It's still in place now amongst most Buddhists, except for the Ambedkar Buddhists, right? Ambedkar Buddhists are a very different branch of Buddhists, but most Buddhists still follow some sort of uh, hierarchy, but. And this again comes back from the fact that I think when you start looking at actually understanding the culture and the communities that these things developed out of, then then you won't have such a, to be honest, like an infantile version of what you think Buddhism is versus Hinduism, because they're so intertwined. At some places, it's so hard to demarcate. Like Buddhist tantra versus Hindu tantra is almost identical in so many ways. Like you just you just can't you can't differentiate. So I, I think part of the point that that, that that you're making and which I totally agree is there is a sense of total um, lack of understanding of of our culture by many people within the cultures. Not only within the culture, and the problem is I, I call this the citation loop. So when you get ruled by a class of people who are not your own and who yeah. think they are superior to you. Whether we like it or not, I mean, I'm not taking it out on the British today or the Americans today. They're good people. Sure. But the, the British and the American intelligentsia of that time, they genuinely believed we were inferior people. They, they believed that. I mean, I'm not saying that. They said that. I mean, you can just. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they said that we were inferior people. Now, what has happened is a lot of scholarship after that has relied on a lot of basic facts provided by them. What mm -hmm. we have not been able to decipher is how much of the facts they provided at that time were out of their sense of a supremacist a racist attitude mm -hmm. and how much of it was genuine you know observation right. and 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 we struggle in this and and where we where we fail as as a bunch of intellectuals on this side sometimes is that a lot of times uh, and this is my problem and uh, i and this has been my way of uh, not agreeing with uh, professor adluri in a way has been that I think what happened is a lot of people saw Edward Said and Orientalism, mm -hmm. and you saw Saidian postmodernism and sure. hermeneutics, and you use Saidian postmodern hermeneutics, and you're like, okay, this is a good model. He's basically used that model. I'm gonna pick up Said's model and I'm gonna apply it on India. So yeah. even the response to the West from the Indian intellectuals is actually a cut copy paste job, in my view. Okay. I mean, I, I I can see that. I I, I can understand that. Uh, I but I do believe there is. I mean, Balagangadhar spends a good amount of time where he tries to approach it from the the Indian sense. But the, the problem is, I, I think I think the problem is twofold. Either way that we end up doing it, we end up talking. First of all, we're talking in the language of of non-Indian language. We're not we're not we're not using terms and tools within the Indian framework and, and applying them. We're, we have to, by the nature of the fact we're engaging with the West or it, the West is our interlocutor, 
you have to use the tools and the language and, and the worldview of the West to respond. So some of obviously our ideas are going to end up becoming filtered to that, through that lens. Whether or not the ultimate tool or the underlying function or foundation of what we want to say is Indian or not, I think they tend to be a little more Indian. But the way we approach it is it has to be Western because that's who we're our talking. If we talk, if we talk only in Indian senses, then we end up having talking past each other. So we have to kind of talk with each other with the tools we are presented, right? So when we talk about like, for example, through sociology or Edward Said's response to the Orient, to the way the West has approached the East, or in his particular case, the Middle East, we have to talk in the dialogue that was presented to us before. So I think when, when, we, when we look at the tools, because I mean, we have to also understand some of these tools are, to be honest, very objectively, you can use them. You have to be oh, able absolutely. to. Because, because absolutely. I mean, science in some sense, or the way academic progress has been made through the West has been in the past two, 300 years, nothing short of monumental. Obviously there's there's terrible things that, that, that came to the table, racism, colonialism, that had influenced the way these tools were used, but it doesn't invalidate the tools that, themselves, right? Like, so I think that the use of those tools in the context of re-engaging with how do we, how do we explain the way that the West looked at us is important. So in that sense, I think I, I would, have to slightly disagree with you. No, no. Uh, what I'm saying is we don't need to dump them. What I'm trying to say is that the so I'll give you an example from yeah. the Indian context. And so let us look at the Jain epistemology or the Jain system of Syadwad. So it's yeah. a seven step system, right? Yeah. So so we start with uh, maybe yes, maybe yeah. no, maybe yes and no, yeah. maybe uh, yes and indescribable, etc., etc. Yeah. It is a seven step, right? Yeah. So the point is that actually what the, the the hermeneutics of all these philosophers were, if you look at uh, the existentialists or, sure. you know, let us look at the language game theory, mm -hmm. right? You can look at the picture theory and the language game theory. I, who was that guy? Wittgenstein, right? Wittgenstein he was, the, was language game theory. Language game. So, so we start with the picture theory and the, uh, Wittgenstein basically came up with the picture theory and then he was not satisfied with the picture theory. Yeah. He dumped it and he came up with the language game theory. Yeah. Now, a lot of things that he says in the language game theory actually makes sense. Sure. You know, every word that comes out of your mouth is from a pre-context. Sure. It, it, you, you, so now you can put up the existentialist argument. The existentialist philosophers, what do they basically say is that you are born in a world which is basically running. Yep. So you're born in a running process where there are certain set norms. So you don't start from a zero. Zero. It's a very interesting thing. Now, if you bring this to Wittgenstein, he uses that, but then brings in some sort of a tabula rasa, which I mean, I'm a student of philosophy, so I'm trying to have that discussion. Now yeah. we bring in Syadwad. Now, if we look at Syadwad, and all these hermeneutics, you can actually draw a lot of parallels if we start using the principles of either the Buddhist Chatushkoti or the Jain Syadwad or sure. even the Hindu philosophy. Uh, although I do believe that Jainism and Buddhism are far more relativistic than Hinduism and this is not going to please a few people, but that's just a fact. Whether we like it or not, Jainism and Buddhism are far more relativistic Absolutely. than Hinduism. Hinduism is far more realistic and evolutionarily sound at the ethico-moral realm. See, yeah. So the problem is that if I was to use Syadwad in its totality, mm -hmm. it leads to nihilism of some sorts. Sure. I mean, we, I mean, I know these things sound very 
crass when you say that especially you know indian listeners get triggered whenever you the moment you try and question any indian idea but the point is i'm trying to criticize it at a philosophical level where i study things as a student of philosophy yeah. so what i'm trying to say is we can use those things my problem stems from is that the entire denialism i mean then you come into the derrida era where everything is you know just a jumbled up version of words and words you know words don't matter or words can be violence and stuff like that it is just the extension of that logic my problem is if you stick to language game theory if you stick to heidegger you stick to jain syadwad at a 60% uh, level not at a 100% level yeah. these things can be used and postmodernism also can be used in a healthy way the yes. problem is it goes to the level of fuko and derida and a lot of argumentation now from the hindu side without taking names and i'm not saying uh, professor adluri has done that he's done a fantastic job he yeah. literally knew where the line was and he stopped them because he's a damn scholar yeah. but the point is not everybody is a vishwa adluri or a joydeep bachchi yeah the, the semi scholarly type or the you know amateurish type like me they might listen to that and say or oh, there is no truth at all yeah. everything is up for grabs and yeah. so everything is a white man's racist conspiracy theory there was no jatiwad in india we were treating everyone with flowers and honey and there was no <laughs> problem in india for 2000 years yeah. caste is invented by the british and maybe the word was invented by the british but jatiwad was not inter- yeah. uh, invented by the british right my problem is that a lot of times these discussions they start at a level a of the yeah, level yeah. of the scholar then it percolates down to level b of, of the consumers of the scholarly work which sure. might be you and i who are serious about it yeah. and then there is a level c d e the pop culture is never decided by a and b the yeah. pop culture is divided c and below and that's where i see a huge relativistic argumentation where my my religion is the and i'm not saying only hindus use it i don't care what christians do i'm a hindu right Yeah. i will only talk about my community if i want to discuss uh, my community I, i have given the by default assumption that abraham abrahamism sucks and hindu philosophy is better than it right. so i don't even need to care about what the and i see sometimes people sympathetic to certain aspects of indian philosophy yep. they tend to dwell you know dwell into that highly relativistic zone where oh this is not true this is a western conspiracy theory no matter what scholar comes he was a racist not everybody is a racist not everybody is a supremacist so my my aim to bring it to my podcast was i wanted to clear this relativism conundrum i wanted to you know remove the dust of the relativistic ideas and yeah. get into the nuances that's why i mean I, 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 even my last podcast i had the most mundane thing where i'll give you an example it's an, an example from politics right now modi had his first speech in the ha- house of parliament right uh-huh. where it basically it was a gathering of nda they elected him as the leader of the nda right. so he did a small gesture while walking before he spoke right he went and bowed down to the constitution of yeah. india it's such a desi thing to do now there are multiple ways one can look into that gesture where it was just to send a message to the opposition where look i believe in democracy and i think that's the only thing we can read into that but then there could be multiple readings right it could be that we are not going to make any change in the democracy and now a person like me found that to be so fascinating that i thought i should discuss this 
right. and i should have a one hour discussion on something as mundane as modi bowing down to the constitution right. my point is if i don't do that there is no material online where people actually have concrete answers to serious things like bowing down to the constitution is it good or bad that's right. what i'm trying sure no and i think you made some good points here and you know, i'm going to try to uh, flesh them out with you right so when you first talk about sadbad i think are you talking in the sense of the relativism as um epistemological relativism of where you can't know the truth or are you trying to make an ontological claim that they 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 claim that everything is by its nature relevant relativistic i think it's more ontological where they claim that everything by its nature is relativistic to to give due credit to the uh, to the jainas they say there is a truth yeah at the level of the kaval kavalis there the truth is there so they, yeah. they do but the problem is a gnostic like me will always deny the <laughs> the the supernatural yeah. level so for me everything is is at the level where i play see my problem with sadwad is not at the spiritual level okay sure. spiritual level even i get nobody knows the truth right, right i mean you can't prove there is an ishwar i can't disprove there is an ishwar whatever right. so the point is so the jains don't have an ishwar anyway so yeah <laughs> <laughs> they don't have it but you a lot of hindu uh, hindus behave through jain ethics today i mean yeah, yeah. people don't realize the influence of jain sadwad on average indian psyche sure people don't see it but it is there because that's how hindus have become so relativistic the problem is when sadwad's thinking enters the moral and ethical realm sure. in its extreme version again sadwad is very good in the moral and ethical realm if used responsibly right but if used in totality then if there is no right or there is no wrong then is child rape bad yeah you get what i'm trying to say right absolutely yeah yeah so i mean and, and the point i think is is well taken here is again these things are tools right it's it's not necessarily sometimes used as a full darshana like siyadbad isn't a darshana it's usually it's a tool to to kind of break down what can be known or what cannot be known and what we can say about reality at all right or if we can say anything right so if it, this is more an issue i don't think you can ever use siyadvad or even any of these chatushkoti to talk about moral truths cuz I, i think i don't think they're i don't think they're meant for that they're meant for uh using it to talk about the nature of the world as in quote unquote objective reality because in the in the hindu buddhist even the jain sense morality is ingrained within nature but it's also somewhat separated in 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 so far say like at least for dharma right when we talk about dharma in indian context there's like three levels there's satya ritha dharma right when you get to when you get to dharma it's actually the application of understanding ritha and then somehow it plays out into the world and that can be subjective it can be it can be flowing you know it changes from time place location so yes well well you're still correct that there is some sort of paramatmic truth out there that is moral and perfect and 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 objective somehow in the way it interacts in this world ends up being somewhat relativistic even though within the game of karma itself because if you assume the idea of karma even buddhist jain or hindu there has to be objective objectivity to it because otherwise there can be no sense of uh, punishment reward for something that isn't objective about it right like uh, ahimsa is always ahimsa is always considered wrong by all three it doesn't matter like how it's done so, it's always wrong right i get it i get it i get it and i'm not saying the scripture has a problem where the scriptures the jains also solve that problem with the yeah. pancha mahavratas and the triratnas yeah. 
Yeah. So you have samyak darshan, samyak gyan, samyak charitra. And how do you get samyak charitra? You have the panchamahavratas. So you have ahinsa, asteya, yeah, yeah. you know, etc., 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 aparigraha, brahmacharya, whatever. Yeah. So you had those positive doctrines in there. Yeah. My problem is the scholar knows the positive doctrine. A philosophy nut knows the positive doctrine. The average consumer just reads three paragraphs that everything is a Western construct. So, yes, you're right. And this is the problem with, with that is I think we, and, and it's not, not we as in like you and I, but collective we, in a sense, are are so concerned about, and this I think particularly applies, I mean, in this particular case, to talk about India, we are so obsessed with the idea of this golden age, perfect Hindu, perfect pre-colonial, pre-Islamic world, where everything was roses and honey and flower petals, instead of recognizing that problems always existed. <laughs> you know, our, our problems shifted a little bit, like, like you said, Jativad never was not created by the british it wasn't it wasn't created by the muslims it was created by us and maybe there was fluidity to it before it became ossified in the british structure of senses and so absolutely on absolutely true but absolutely. we still have instances when we know that there was some level of of oppression of certain communities if they're in a certain region if like for example like we like mahabharata all these texts talk about like an untouchable has to live outside the village has to live here I'm sure it wasn't just someone's fantasy that was like growing in their head. There had to be some reality somewhere where this occurred. Absolutely. So, See, I always have this discussion with my Astika friends and I tell them, I was like, okay, maybe Arthashastra is not a Smriti still. Yeah. I mean, the punishments in the Arthashastra as yeah. per Chanakya are different for different Varnas. Yep. They yep. are. You may not like that fact. How did that guy come up with that idea? I'm willing to concede that caste was, Jati was far more fluid at that time, that if you went from one gown to the other gown, yeah. or one, one, uh, you know, one area to the other area, maybe you can skip the varna, varna you were part of or the Jati you were part of and you can go up in the hierarchy. Yeah. I'm willing to concede that. I'm even willing to accept that when a foreign invader comes, you tend to become more ossified. It's absolutely sensible from psychological data. Yep, you I do agree. tend to become more polarized. When there is an outside force, I mean, uh, if somebody says proof of that, but the immigration is the biggest proof of that in today's world. <laughs> See yeah. how people are becoming ossified with immigration. So right. this was an, you know, this was a big immigration and aggressive immigration at that time. What do you think people are going to become ossified? And they, then they tend to develop a few bad habits, just like a certain section of our societies today are becoming bigoted. The yeah. majority is also becoming bigoted to the person coming in. Sure. Not everybody who comes into our country is a bad person, right? But we tend to generalize, right? There is bigotry, right? So what I'm trying to yes, it's a so my whole point is that's where I believe I as a charvak, and this is now we get to my my idea. I believe there are certain universal rights and objective wrongs. They, we can get them. The only answer to that is our evolutionary nature. In, co in obviously in co correlation with the nurture i'm not saying it's all genetic i'm not a i'm not going to commit a naturalistic fallacy here sure. i'm i'm not doing that but what i'm trying to say that is my worry is in the 70s western intelligentsia got ruined by a man called jack zarida yeah and foucault luckily that disease is only in the universities in india sure. and has not percolated 
outside the universities in india is luckily indians are not reading those people <laughs> as of now but my biggest fear is that through our curriculum they, we will have this and even the response to the western hegemony or the western thought control on who we are as people right. the answer is a lot of tools a lot of deconstruction of derrida uh, it's a horrendous solution to a very bad problem that's what i'm trying to say okay so i have a couple of follow ups to you so you don't believe in paramarthmik you're very uh, vyavaharic or uh, the, the based on the loka um what then how do you ground your objective moral truths is a very similar to sam harris's like uh you know his moral landscape book that he he comes out with or is it more um uh how 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 do you develop or the two questions how would you know that there are moral truths and how do you come to those conclusions okay very very good question i i actually have not thought of it like uh, sam harris although i've read his moral landscape i've actually read all the work of sam harris very interesting guy by the way yeah yeah fascinating fascinating guy so i i always find this question very interesting and uh, funny at the same time yeah when when religious people or astikas ground their truths right moral moral object they have moral objectives too yeah they ground it from a parmarthika source they do yeah. they they do They, they, whether it's the Advaitins or anyone, their their moral objectives come from us. So, like for the Buddhists, there were the what they call the dharmas, right? Yeah. The, there there were seventy two dharmas, or for one type, or there were forty three dharmas for the other type. Everybody has objective moral values that they ground them through some source. In the sure. case of the Jainas and Buddhas, they they ground it from their their teachers. Yeah. in the case of the hindus they they get it from the vedas and the upanishads and yep. the manuspriti also has the nine or 10 values right in my case everybody is allowed the a priori assumption sure why am i not allowed that is my no problem. you are so i'm just asking where would where would that okay. world truth like uh, so uh, my a priori assumption comes from our inherent evolutionary nature okay so the only a priori assumption that i have taken in my objective ethics or my objective morality is that beyond the point survival of the genome yeah i'm i'm talking at the level of the gene uh-huh that's the only goal and the sole aim right everything else is basically stemming from that survival is kind of hardwired in us yeah. from survival stems altruism from survival stems bigotry from survival stems all those things once we get it that all these different emotions and values they right. stem from our inherent evolutionary nature then we put it in a game theoretical model which makes more sense it's very simple and game theoretically i mean most scholars agree tit for tat is the most sound strategy right as far as game theory is concerned although robert sapolsky has come up with a criticism of that in his new book i think behave or something of that i yeah, don't yeah, know yeah. he he's come up with a criticism of that but my point is i think for me beyond the point that the only assumption i'm making is that we are all evolutionary creatures yeah. and to me effective altruism or you would just want to call it reciprocal altruism yeah. makes deep sense at the level of the species itself sure we as species have to be kind most of the times i mean let's take this example why does ahimsa of the hindu variety not of the jain variety yeah yeah yes. Right. of the hindu variety makes so much sense i mean it's very simple if we are a society of 100 people everybody believes in the principle of hindu ahimsa we just survive better yeah. it's as simple as that 
and look at how sound the hindu ahimsa is because these buggers they got game theory totally because they realized that if the other guy is abu bakar al baghdadi i can't be a bloody pacifist so no. abu bakar al baghdadi came and told you know came to attack me i'll attack him in self defense yeah. so they allowed self defense unlike the jainas and the buddhists who are like total pacifists but that was the shramanic life right as you said yeah. we were not shramanas we had the ashram vyavastha we became shramanas when we come old farts yeah but when, that's right. when we and so hind the hindu actually if you look at it hinduism makes the most sense in these areas evolutionarily yeah and 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 some and i do agree with you like i i think the way you're grounding it in in evolution or the idea of survival of the genome I mean I think it's been proposed by obviously evolutionary biologists before. I think uh um I mean not Jay Gould but obviously Dawkins talks about the origins of morality and evolutionary psychology today is the entire fields about this concept of where our moral uh, That's what I get it from too. Yeah. So I mean a large part of it like for example I mean you can notice that even amongst chimpanzees their ideas of justice or fairness come from you they do the same act but you give one chimpanzee a per, a certain uh treat and you give the other one another treat yeah. they they see the video. difference right so the, yeah. some of this obviously is very hardwired into us but the but the, but i think the question then becomes is there's so many different types of and, and this is maybe not a question that you and i can answer at any day but like there's so many different types of moral behaviors and truths in the same goal of survival of pressing on the gene right for one like you say tit for tat you come after me i come after you i end you your entire uh species or not your species but your tribe and your people and that can ensure a good amount of survival the other other tactic can be like okay you know what you came after me let me reconcile with you build a larger community where we're together that leads to another type of survival but both survivals lead to both both actions lead to equal chance of survival maybe i don't know the numbers what makes one better than the other i mean that would be the question right because if the goal is gene genome passing on and morality is just a byproduct of any action that leads to that being done then what differentiates one act versus another that well, leads the, to the, the same so again there we'll have to create another a priori assumption that the survival of the entire set of people as a species is the most noble value so right. not it's just not my gene i have to get over my inherent nature and right. i have to create strategies where which strategy will ensure that my gene survives the most i think the strategy of looking at all of humanity as one which includes the animals by the way right which includes the environment by the way if we i mean then then we get into peter singer and his expanding moral arch Sure. and i think we uh, we don't even need to use peter singer we need to use again core hindu philosophy where you know hindu philosophy uh, or pagan philosophies or ancient animist cultures would see gods and goddesses or ishwars or you know some kinds of divine things mm -hmm. in different elements if you look at it they were just trying to worship or protect those things and yeah. obviously they did not understand it so what we can do is we can create a sort of an evolutionary framework of those kinds of cultures where we keep on expanding our moral arts from where we we basically say it started with our tribe which was the classical you know dunbar number 100 150 people tribe right. then we found agriculture we need to upgrade our ethics agriculture led to these serious religions and 
these serious religions have gotten us into a new situation where we are not used to living with a billion people in a country sure and with with a billion people we need to expand our moral arch now we are in the internet age where i mean look at you and i you're sitting in you know united states i'm sitting in india yeah we're recording this conversation and whether we like it or not you know my moral decisions and your moral decisions are interconnected sure. at a global level so now we need to expand that tribal thinking we just have to redefine the meaning of a tribe now we need to make our tribe more global than local while we are localized also i'm not saying we need to tear our passports down i'm not john lennon uh, and i'm not going to start singing imagine yeah. what i'm trying to say is that the only thing you and i need to agree on is what mutual respect reciprocity and ahimsa yeah. if the if i am going to behave this way with people who believe in these three principles mutual respect reciprocity and ahimsa if yeah. i find anyone black brown white i don't care who believes in these three basic qualities sure i believe i can live with that person it does not matter which religion that person follows yeah. or if that person is an atheist so this is how i ground my morality this this is how i play the games in my head as a child sure. no and that, and, and i and, and i think i, I think for I, i would imagine for though that's a very very it's not just a charvak position to be honest i think it's a very historically indian position is anyone that comes to our our community our world our our part of the, our part of the world india at that time pakistan afghanistan all those regions you come with your religion you come with your belief system but the moment you come here you treat us equally as we can treat you you don't start wars with us you do what you want we'll do what we want we're happy that's really what i think the indian or hindu mentality has yeah. been for Absolutely. ages right and so, the thing with the charvak position is there is no charvak position we don't yeah. know what the charvak stood for i'm just taking stating that position for them yeah yeah that's right i mean as one of the last few living charvaks who claims to be a charvak you have the right to do that <laughs> so actually and i i was thinking about this when we were talking uh about the idea of you know as i said like a tribe can kill another tribe or a tribe can assimilate with another tribe and i was thinking this is exactly what islam and christianity did right they give you those two choices you either you either accept and assimilate to our tribe by our values or our system our beliefs or we exterminate you right so one is actually i mean they both lead to the same goal but like you said your gene pool is actually expanded when you in, include someone into your community but doing it in a way that's used through the threat of force in some sense right? absolutely and, and this is this is all i'm saying that are there cut copy paste global answers for every scenario obviously they're not there there are caveats for some things but you can have a template to work sure. on i believe the template of mutual respect reciprocity and ahimsa yeah is workable i believe reciprocal altruism the key with altruism is it has to be reciprocal if it's not there is no reciprocity right. then it doesn't work the moment they break the reciprocity code right. we behave with them in the game theoretical model of tit for tat Yep. So I think it's pretty clear. I mean, in my head, it's pretty clear that if Abu Bakr Al Baghdadi comes, I'm going to kick his ass. Yeah, yeah. But but if Mahavir or Buddha or Guru Nanak Dev Ji or say you know even a peaceful Bulesha comes, or Jesus gonna, comes, you're going to be yeah, like, I'm not going to yeah, I'm not going to kick their ass. Yeah, seems reasonable. Yeah, so it, it, that's what I'm trying to say. So that's how I think, or that's right. what 
my aim as a Gnostic and yeah. as a Charvak is that because whatever we know about the Charvaks is through a second person source. It's right. not like, you know, the Charvaks were writing and their books survived. Even with Jairasi Bhatta, he basically was making fun of everyone else. He didn't state what he believed in. So the problem is we literally don't know what the Charvaks believed in and we have to take everything the Advaitins or uh, the Buddhists or the Jainas or the Mahabharata say about the Charvaks with a yeah. pinch of salt. So yeah. literally the playing field for a Charvak who wants to develop Charvak ethics, Charvak morals, Charvak epistemology right. are actually literally open. It's, a, right. it's an open field. So all uh, I didn't stop anyone else from doing it. I just started doing it myself. I was like, okay, <laughs> nobody else is doing it. I'm going to do it. No, and that's, and that's at least... You, you're, you're taking up that that banner again, and 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 too too far too long. I think a lot of Hindus have just been very focused on like, oh, we had all these darshanas, and yet we don't have a lot of them still existing today and and engaging. So it's good that you're bringing that back and, and bringing that that element. Because and, and I actually I talked to Nitin Shridhar, I don't know, like oh, three weeks ago. I did a podcast with him too. Yeah, and I one of the things I brought up, and I think is very important and necessary is. We've lost as as a people our sense of debate, right? We don't. We no longer have like I'm not talking your Arnab Goswami times now debates where just debate. twenty that talking heads yelling and screaming at each other. That's not what I mean. I mean a, a proper debate like they used to have, where you sit, you talk about an issue, and you you break down the 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 premises and then the reasoning, and then you have a have a total dialogue about it. And I, this. I, I won't even call it a debate. I would call it a month and sort of a Socratic sure. month and where we we ultimately our uh, goal is that we want to achieve the truth. Truth, right? So I mean, and this is something that I think the West and to be honest, and this is because I, I mean, you've talked to Farhan Qureshi, you've talked to like a few of these people, right? Uh, a lot of these guys used to do uh, apologetics, right? They would debate with a Christian or an atheist or whoever, especially in the U.S. I used to watch their debates for a, uh, for a while. It was just always interesting because it would talk, for example, their the big topic would be like, is is God evil or something of that nature or is the Christian God true or something like that. We don't, I don't see that happening as much within the Indian society where we're actually trying to deal with not only internal indigenous Indian ideas, but even dealing with Islam or Christianity or any other religion that's part in parcel of the Indian fabric today, right? How are we engaging with the battle of ideas through the battle of ideas as opposed to being talking heads yelling at each other and i think this this is where you bring some some a, a breath of fresh air because you come in and you're able to actually have these debates as like the interlocutor that has no position on the religions really per se right on their philosophical ultimate uh, their on their ontological or metaphysical truths that they're trying to hawk yeah, the problem is that people don't read enough and, uh, and I don't expect people to read the amount of books I read or for the amount of books, you know, a professor in a university reads. Sure. I mean, I don't even read as much as they read. I, I, I'm yet to reach that level. I mean, I've hardly read, what, 300, 400 books. That's nothing. Yeah, but you have a full-time I mean, job. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, but I mean, so what, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to genuinely ask questions because it, I think it comes with interest. In my case, I was genuinely interested in understanding how do you ground morality in. I think that is a very valid question. Where do your morals come from? And 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 for a person like me, it's a no-brainer. I was like, why don't why doesn't everybody think why do they do something good or bad? Right. Isn't it a natural 
natural thing to ask yourself why should i be good to xyz or right. why should i be bad with xyz and then i guess i'm just wired differently and and that's the only thing that i have been able to you know satisfy myself with that maybe i'm just weird and if i am weird uh, this is all i'm going to do and i keep like even when i time spend time on social media i i try to analyze what people are doing on social media their behavioral patterns like i, I have a ethical problem with the way social media is structured yeah where where they have basically created a drug 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 machine where they are drugging people and they are making addicts and they don't even have a statutory warning unlike what you have on a cigarette bottle or a, a cigarette pack or a alcohol bottle sure. where you know yeah no when you consume cigarette or alcohol you know these are substances which will basically induce something in you and make you addicted to them and we know that with gambling because gambling has been declared as an addiction right. but nobody has declared social media as an official addiction and nobody forces these companies to give a statutory warning to a new user at least once a year or when they sign into their account that listen we have created this platform just like the vegas slot machines where your refresh button is like up to down and the slot machines are like this so you're going to get a dopamine rush every time you refresh i'm just using them as an example to no, explain but, where i come from yeah so for me these things matter and i have realized that they don't matter to most people and i don't blame them because they just want to live a happy life but then in that case if most people are going to live a happy life somebody has to do it i'm just voluntarily doing it because it makes me genuinely happy yeah and i think that makes sense i mean like i i tend to oscillate between being a kantian uh kantian moral position uh, always trying to do the categorical imperative right thing to do um with in some sense a very uh utilitarian sense of uh morality too because i think there's there's a mix and 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 luckily i find that mix well done with krishna's idea of of morality is done right absolutely he has absolutely moral truths that are actually out there and they're true and exist but they're within the way you work you might have to be relativistic and utilitarian at times um with your moral behavior and i and i see that and and to me it's like the the way to and, it, and and this is and like you said a lot of people don't read but i think a lot of people have these thoughts in the back of their head and i cuz i mean we all live our lives in moral contradiction right i mean peter singer talks about the inherent nature of of how we we do this right and and, and part of the problem is that like he like his example was totally totally true is you see a dying child here you're more likely to jump in and wait in and go after the child instead of thinking about the fact that the child somewhere else in the world that's drowning and and affected by that right because there's a visceral connection to that child right here versus the child farther away and this is one of the things i mean what well, there's also a constant saying right um death of one person is a tragedy but uh, 100 people is a, a statistic right yes. it's it's simply like we if it's not personalized to us it becomes very, very difficult to have a moral sense and grounding and and it becomes very difficult to live life if you really think about it right if if we're affected so badly we say someone get hurt in front of us but we start to really empathize and feel about millions of children dying around the world i think it'll it would put a stop still to everything we're doing in life if we really yeah. thought about it right so obviously i think there's a evolutionary brain way that we're dealing with it compartmentalizing all these things 
Yeah, so, absolutely. I mean, even in, in the case of William McCaskill and his example where there is a fire in the house and there is yeah. a child and then there is a $10 million Picasso, what should you do? Right. I mean, uh, the assumption obviously there being that the $10 million Picasso can be sold and all the money from the $10 million Picasso can be used to save, say, a million children's lives. What, yeah. what are you going to do? And right. obviously, you're going to be a sociopath if you save the Picasso because right. everybody is going to save the child. But right. the point is, saving the child if you use this argument is not the rational answer and to right. to add to what you say about krishna's ethics in fact if you look at it krishna's nishkam karma yeah and the categorical imperative where you know doing a duty for duty's sake right yeah. it's it's a deontological ethic right. so so duty for duty's sake is nishkam karma yeah that's right nishkam karma is you have no control over the results so do right. duty for duty's sake because right. it's the right thing to do and he tried to ground it in obviously the karmic cycle of one birth to the to the other birth yeah. but the point is the kantian categorical imperative you are 100 percent right is very simple very similar to krishna's nishkam karma yeah but but the difference with krishna was also uh he was very utilitarian when things yes. needed to be done he was yeah. just the the moral requirement of the imperative was taken to a larger level, which is what's the goal? What's the duty here? Is it to to fight the battle? Okay, now I'm going to fight the battle. How do I fight this battle? Do I fight it righteously? Well, yes. If if the person fighting me righteously is fighting righteously, I fight back righteously. But if you're going to break the rules, then good luck. I'm going to throw all other rules out the window, and I'm coming after you in whichever way I can, right? Which yeah. is what he does. In, in his he's telling everyone, look at the greater goal. Focus. If they play by the rules, yes. you play by the rules. If they don't, and they don't. This right. is why Krishna is superior to Kant. Uh, this is why Krishna is superior to Kant because in the Kantian world you simply cannot lie. Yeah. Krishna lied himself. Remember yeah. what he did with Duryodhana. Yeah, yeah. But but his constant lying is also. But the difference would also be in the Indian context is, even though you might do the good thing with, I mean the, a bad thing with good intentions, you still do with the karmic consequences, right? None of this. It, it's it's not a zero sum game where like. Oh, you lie and everything is done. No, it, it, there's like this weird, weird, complex calculus that's playing out at some level of, you know, I, I, I'm throwing in a, a total uh, wrench from like third field. I mean, like the, I guess the left field here, like this idea of the virtual world or virtual reality we're living in, right? I'm sure you've read about this from um, a lot of philosophers. I think his name was uh, Nick Bostrom. Bostrom, yeah. I started this, right? If we're actually living in uh, virtual reality, um, obviously, we wouldn't be able to tell the difference, but there would be rules that play in. And in some sense, I think of karma and the whole world of samsara as we as like this overall programming of the universe we live in. So, if you believe in that paramatmic kind of world, then it makes sense with having a programming in which all actions are weighed and and everything plays out, and then samsara plays out just like the texts talk about. Because it, it becomes a very programmic kind of thing, right? It's just, and Ishwar has no real role here. He just, once in a while, it's like Matrix. He's like Neo. He comes in, does a few things, pops back out, and then, like, the, the program keeps going, right? Yeah, he's like the deistic uh, Ishwar. Yeah. So, it, it, I mean, to me, it's just, it, it, there's so many disparate ideas that when you talk about Indian thought, it, it, it's, you'll find corollaries in pretty much everything in the West. Um, I mean, and even like, for example, when you even brought up um, your postmodernism, your, for, uh, you know, your Dridra and Foucault, 
it's very much what what nama rupa in 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 the sanskrit uh like philosophical systems tend to be right what 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 is language and they half the time their philosophical disagreements are about language what does a term mean what yes. does it have is it free meaning does it have with does it already come laden with 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 information and knowledge and and is or is this created like a, a Bhattarhari versus someone like shankara versus someone like ramanja where they all have different theories of language and those theories of language impact the way that they view the world yeah, but the Nayakas had the most sensible one. I think Sporta theory was quite interesting too. Yeah. Where basically the the whole debate in Indian philosophy is: Do the words have an inherent meaning, yeah. or does the does the sentence have a meaning? So the or somebody the says the word, uh, yeah, yeah. So what they say, no, it's the words have no meaning if they are not arranged in a grammatically correct form. Right. So the true meaning is of the sentence, but then the, the rebuttal would be: Well, then the the sentences, the words are part of the sentence. So if right. the words don't have a meaning, the sentences don't have a meaning, and then we just keep on going round and round and round around it. And I think in that case, you know, you can use uh, uh, the language basically structure in our brain yeah uh, I forgot that guy Noam Chomsky's uh, Chomsky. claim and Canada. Chomsky's yeah so Chomsky can be very helpful in that case also and obviously Steven Pinker's uh, how language evolved uh, yeah. he, he has also written a beautiful book on that so so these are this is where I so this is what I try to do I try to gather as much as I can I mean I'm not a charvak who rejects all and everything astikas Sure. And other Nastikas have to offer. I take wherever I get something meaningful. So I think I am a, a pragmatist. I am utilitarian when it suits me. I am you know, I am an existentialist when it suits me. I am a, a, someone who follows the, the Buddhist philosophy when it suits me. Sure. So it's like you get whatever you get from everything. But you ground it in the most sensible evolutionary psychology based ethic. That's what I'm trying to do. So I'm trying to create a parallel where I try to read as much as I can of John Tooby, Lisa Cognitis, or David Buss, and all yeah. the evolutionary psychologists. And I try to read uh, Indian uh, Indian Darshanas. At the same time, I try to read the scholastics too. I try to read whatever I can. I, I try to read whatever I can get my hand on. I don't try to read everything in detail, but I try to read a bit of everything. So sure. what I get is, I get the essence of all everything they're trying to say. Like in my first year of my master's in philosophy, they introduced us in detail of far more detail with Indian darshanas because first year was Indian philosophy. Okay. And they did introduce uh, us to, you know, the existentialists and uh, other other folks too. And the main focus was primarily on the scholastic and the Thomistic traditions. Uh -huh. But I tried to gain whatever I could. Uh, they had a bit of an introduction to Derrida and Foucault, especially to Derrida and the Frankfurt School. So sure. what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to understand what these people are trying to say. And then I look at it from a purely evolutionary lens. Yeah. I just look at it that why would we do these things from a, you know, from the point of view of an ape? Because sure. that's what we are a primate. Basically, yeah. we are all primates. Yeah. So why would a primate behave like that? And then from there, you build the Charvak Darshan bit by bit, brick by brick. And I can't do it alone. I need more charvaks. The problem is everybody is busy being a Hindu atheist. I, I have to convince them that you stop being an atheist, become a charvak, yeah. become like me. You dump that model because the day you dump the atheist label, you dump a lot of soft Abrahamism with that. So, so let, me, let me ask you this question. So when, when you say Hindu atheist, so I think part of it you just answered. Um, what does that exactly mean, especially in the Indian context, right? Like I, I don't, um, it, 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 
And what would be the differentiator differentiation between a Charvak and a Hindu atheist, in your view? Well, uh, I think the difference between a Charvak and a Hindu atheist will not be epistemological. It will be more cultural and identitarian. Okay. And I'll tell you how it is and why that matters to me. Okay. Because to say that religion needs to die is something I, I, I just don't waste my time over it. Okay. Because it's not going to die. Religions are memeplexes. Sure. One memeplex dies and is replaced by another. Mm-hmm. So it, nothing actually dies. You, 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 you live by a set of rules. Right. You're not good. You can debate which set of rules are better. Right. The problem with most atheists that come from a Western background is that, look, you can only negate. What is atheism? At its core level, atheism is only a negation. Atheism, mm-hmm. has, atheism has no positive doctrine. Sure. Secular humanism has a positive doctrine. A lot of times people confuse atheism with secular humanism. Sure. They, they confuse the two. You could be an atheist and a Marxist. So yeah. that guy's positive doctrine is Marxism, not secular humanism. Marxism right. is not the same as secular humanism. No, Marxist no, no. philosophy is dangerous. Now, what I'm trying to say is the day you become the atheism that came up in the West came up in the same binary mode that theism came up in the West. Atheism in the West is a rejection of Christian morality, Christian ethics, Christian binary thinking. So their rejection also became a sort of a mirror image of them. Right. Now, yes, atheists are learning Buddhism and a lot of folks like Sam Harris are trying to add nuance to. And if you look at it very interestingly, Sam Harris reluctantly calls himself an atheist. I don't know how many people have noticed that. I have rarely heard Sam Harris call himself an atheist. Well, I mean, he did, especially in the early parts where he... But he rejected that label now. Yeah, I mean, he, 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 yeah, he hasn't really brought it up much. You're right. He's kind of like stepped away. But I think because his focus, I I believe he thinks it, it, it draws too much unwanted attention towards his atheism as opposed to his other ideas and his other pursuits in life. The problem is Sam Harris likes a lot of Buddhism. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He can't be an atheist, really, because he well, likes a lot of Buddhism, so he has to dump it somewhere. But Buddhist, Buddhism itself is only atheistic insofar as there's no Ishvara. So it's an Ishvarvadi, is, you can say that instead. But it's not atheism in the sense of total rejection of religion. True. But so this is my whole point. Why I think Hindu atheist word makes no sense is, what, what, what are you negating? Are you negating a Christian God? Are you negating Christian ethics? No, you can be an Aztec and a Gnostic. Our game, our playing field is different. So I give the example of two ships. There yeah. are two ships. The one ship is the Abrahamic ship. Yeah. In the Abrahamic ship, there, is, there are only two options in life. It's either yeah. this or that. You either go to heaven or go to hell. Yeah. And the atheist also functions the same way as the Abrahamic uh, guy does. It's pretty much the same. Yeah. They don't like to listen to that because they have closed their mind as much as the Abrahamic guy has. Right. And then there is my ship. My ship is the Indian ship where you are there. I am there. Everybody is there. All we ask is mutual respect, reciprocity, ahinsa. Everybody goes into the same ship while we debate, while we have beer together. If you don't like beer, don't have beer. You can find every single person has a room in the ship, including the binary atheist himself. That's right. 
That's right. But in their ship, we have no space. In our ship, they have a space. So which system is superior, our system or their system? So yeah. that's why the, the tag Hindu atheist or atheist yeah. makes no sense if you want to be part of the ship that I call the Indic ship. Now, if you don't want to be part of that ship and you think the Hindu tag is something so vulgar and something so irritating and annoying, I don't care. I'm on not on your ship. You can go your way. I can right. go my way in my life. But in my civilizationalism, like I'm not a nationalist or a patriot. I've always maintained that. I'm neither a nationalist nor a patriot. I believe in something what I call civilizationalism, where the boundaries of India, while they exist, they have to be flexible to people who are sympathetic to Indic ideas anywhere in the world. Right. This, this landmass has to be the natural landmass, irrespective of their skin color, to people who believe in these core Indic values of plurality. Okay. So tomorrow, if shit hits the roof for people who believe in our ideas in America, India has to take them. So, so that so everything is interconnected in my worldview. No, it, it, I think this is, I mean, I, I do have a couple questions to follow up on this because I, I think this is actually a good segue also into the, into the conversation about the politics and the political nature of India currently. Um, and you actually did the perfect segue talking about it. Um, so in the... In, in, so we have this plurality of different positions. Obviously, like you said, your your example of two boats, right? And it, it's basically, in some sense, in my in my in my assessment, it is really about binary versus fuzzy, right? In yes. the Indian in Indian system or Indian civilization, everything's like a fuzzy logic, you know. And in the the and I I, I, the, I wouldn't say European because European also includes pagan, but a very particularly Christian Islamic mentality is very much so like this binary yes no heaven hell and 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 that. So in that context, why? And this is where I'll transition in. Why is there such a, a sense within the Western and I guess a large part of Indian media that Hinduism in in India? is such a terrible force while while the, the the christians and muslims there tend to be viewed as kind of like the 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 great case of 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 like flowering of ideas in some sense yeah so so just to give a proper word to what you call fuzzy i would say if people remember in facebook there used to be a status option called it's complicated <laughs> This relationships, yeah. Yes. So that's how we define our, our relationships in India. I think we everything is complicated. Yeah. But now to come on the political understanding of India, I think the biggest problem is that uh, how India has been governed for, for the last 70 years has been in a, by a group of people who belong to a certain mindset. They have typecasted India in their own mental template. I mean, it's all about what mental template you use. Sure. The mental template used by the Indians of India is the template that is a very weird identity politics laced left wing postmodern view where everything is, you know, oppression Olympics. There is a hierarchy of oppressed people and, and in that hierarchy, Muslims are far more oppressed than every other group in India. Then come the Christians and then if the conflict is between the Muslim and the Christian, the Christian loses, the Muslim wins. Then the conflict is between the Dalit and the Christian, the Christian wins, the Dalit loses. Similarly, Dalit and Muslim. The conflict is between the Brahmin and the Dalit, the Brahmin loses, the Dalit wins. So it's basically 
based on this operation olympics and uh, victimology poker as professor gatsad you, you use the beautiful word so everything is based out of that victimology and oppression spectrum and in that our entire political setup is based on that i i always maintain that india does not have any political outfit mm-hmm. that is actually truly non left in thought including the bjp bjp is a left wing party bjp okay. is a left wing political outfit in india the entire indian political spectrum is the different shades of left wing politics practiced and experimented on brown people in india so can you explain what you mean exactly by left wing politics in this sense everybody is a socialist that's okay. pretty left wing the indian constitution itself calls itself socialist secular which is very yeah. weird and the constitution had to say we are secular <laughs> so weird I mean, it just makes no sense it's just one of those things and if you look at the political policies right policies of every single indian political outfit are what you can relate to policies of a typical left wing political outfit in the west in okay. that sense now now if you look at appeasement politics uh-huh it's not that the bjp doesn't appease people the bjp also appeases sure. they appease the hindu so what people are doing is every single political outfit in india is a socialist every single political outfit in india practices identity politics it's just that the identity that matters to that political outfit is different which in case of the congress is the christians and the muslims in case of the dravida munatara kalagam is the tamil identity politics yeah in case of the bjp it's the hindutva hindu identity politics in the case of the shiromani akali dal it is the sikh identity politics in the case of uh, you know pdp and national conference is the islamist muslim identity politics Sure. So everybody is pandering. So everything is through the prism of oppression Olympics and victimology poker. So there are Hindus claiming victimhood, Muslims claiming victimhood, Christians claiming victimhood, language groups claiming victimhood. Everybody is claiming victimhood because we have created a system where we have incentivized people to declare themselves to be victimized and backward. So I mean, yes, I, I do see that. But my question is, would it wouldn't it be? the nature of pretty much every democracy that does that right like even if you look at the US in the in the 50s 60s 40s and even the 70s and 80s basically like democrats would cater to the african americans right because clearly they were victims for a long period of time with slavery segregation jim crow laws so on so and then and then what has happened recently is that the republican party after lyndon johnson you know left uh LGB left and uh you know started the the democrats uh made them made them to into the liberals the republicans became the conservatives in which became the party of white people and or or white wasp conservative people now isn't that the case i i feel like every country plays identity politics in their democratic elections because the nature is you have to kind of you have to kind of do that right and if if you're homogenous as a country it's much easier not to have the identity politics because you focus on issues because everyone else is basically the same but the more and more you become more diverse in terms of religion and culture and communities everyone wants to have to have a say everyone wants to have their people represented and sometimes that represent i mean maybe it comes out to people are more concerned about diversity of skin color or diversity of a particular in group versus diversity of ideas right you know the latter being the more ideal thing that people would want diversity of ideas but people tend to and focusing on diversity of 
outward things, color or or your religious groups. So how how is it any different from anywhere else then? Well, there is a huge difference because you have completely skipped the key differentiation in most uh, Western democracies. It's not really so much on the basis of cultural issues, it's economic issues. The differentiation over there between the Republicans and the Democrats is not just on the basis of identity politics, it's also on the basis of economic pol policies. There, they are distinctly different. Both groups may pander to a particular race, but when it comes on economic policies or on certain worldviews, they are distinctly different. In the case of the Congress and BJP, I can print out, uh, I, and I always say this with my friends, I'll play this game with them. I'll remove the emblem and the name of the political party out, and I'll just present their manifestos. I yeah. think you guys did, uh, you had an episode with, yeah. si, was it Sai, uh, Sai or somebody else? No, no, I did it with Ruchir Sharma. Yes. Basically, Ruchir and I and uh, another gentleman, uh, we tried to do this game. Where I Basically, I had done it with a friend of mine who's an ex-Muslim called Haris Sultan. So uh -huh. I had told him, I'm going to give you policies, you tell me who did it. And he could not understand if it was a BJP policy or a Congress policy because sure. he thought everything is Congress and I kept on giving him BJP policies. <laughs> so, so I was like, you get it. There's no difference. So that is where there is uh, a significant difference between Indian politics and Western politics everywhere. There is a capitalist wing in the West. There is nobody in India that believes in any form of free market policies. In 1992, we had to adopt it because we yeah. were bankrupt. Okay. This, yeah, it was not like we did it. And even today, the BJP has not stopped a single scheme of Congress. They have done every single policy with full force that the Congress did. So when people call BJP right wing, my objection yeah. is not that you call BJP a Hindutva party. They stand sure. for Hindutva. The sure. debate can be what Hindutva means for the BJP versus how it's projected in the West. That is a valid debate to have. But to call BJP right wing fascists is inaccurate because BJP is neither right wing nor fascist. No, so the, in that sense, I totally, I think you're absolutely right. It's, it's I mean, I think right wing, it, Right wing and left wing, like you rightly said earlier, is much more indicative of the European and Western world than it has been of India for the past, you know, 80, 70, 76 years, right? No, 73 years or something like that, right? Um, whatever it is, since independence. But um, the, the, and, and I'm just going to do a little pushback on this because I, I think there's, while I would say this, the U.S. ever since World War II has become more socialist, right? We've, we've adopted with FDR, we've adopted, you know, the New Deal policies of, you know, Social Security and Medicare and Medi-Cal and this entire system of, of, of a, a safety net to help the, the country. And we've, and, and, and to be honest, even like, like our subsidiaries to farmers or, or to certain industries are a form of socialism, right? Uh, us giving back to uh, uh, some industry for them to, to, to grow more or whatever. So to say that we're purely capitalist, I don't think there's any purely capitalist country in the world. It's, I mean, capitalist nowadays is much more a talking point than a reality because of the nature of, of corporate structures and corporations have created this more of an oligarchy uh, in terms of power and how it's vested in money than we're really talking about capitalism. So in that sense, 
I think theoretically there is that distinction, but my problem is in reality, I don't know if there's much of a distinction between the the Democrats and Republicans when it comes to these things outside of, to be honest, either foreign policy and how they think about dealing with other nations or the way they think about dealing with minority groups. Because we, in some level, you can't really separate out economics from social situations, right? I mean, they're so intertwined, it's, it's almost impossible. Like, for example, whether or not you want to have a, a policy to help, you know, the poor people, the poor people end up being in the U.S., disproportionately high African-Americans or Latino. So inherently there are policies that might be economic in nature, but have such a wide impact that there cannot, but not be seen as somehow connecting to race or class. So yeah, I, mean, I, I, yeah. I, I would I would say that still does not answer the, the point that there is no difference between the two parties. There are distinct differences between the two parties simply because there, there is a growing uh, wing in the Democrat, Democratic Party right now, which believes that people earning, you know, the higher income earners should be taxed 90%. Bernie Sanders has been on record saying there should be a progressive income tax of 90%. Yeah. A crazy lady from New York, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, uh, yeah. says there should be a, a progressive income tax of 70%. Name one Republican who agrees with that. There well, is I a mean, significant that there, there is no there, there is a disagreement there. So now in India, is, this in is, India, show me one political outfit who will disagree with seventy percent progressive tax on paper. No, no, no. But, 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 but this is the interesting part, right? Because until about the nineteen sixties and seventies, we did have that progressive tax by both parties agreed to it. I know. And then and then after after the the seventies and eighties and Reagan's movement towards the de started with the Democrats. It yeah, started with the Democrats. Yeah, it, it started there, but there was actually across the board agreement on that. And and because the dialogue has shifted and partially due to, I think, a lot of lobbying and things of that nature that have changed the way we think about the role of taxation and the role of what it means to be a citizen within a country. We don't, by the way, no one really talks about that anymore, right? About civics and ethics and what the duty of being a citizen is. We just talk about rights. Like we're really focused on these idea of rights. And, and that's another topic, but... In the U.S. system, I think like that taxation issue has become demarcated because the nature of, of what they saw as being responsible within as a citizen has shifted. Agreed, but it still doesn't change the point that it is a matter of debate in that part of the world where there yeah. is a debate between higher taxes and lower taxes. For and example, that's not in India. There's no debate on higher lower taxes in India. Uh, no. No, really? who debates that? No, everybody just believes in uh, freebies and uh, you know the the rich are evil and the poor are uh, this. And uh, there is a debate in America on whether healthcare should be single payer or the current system is good or not. There is a debate. Didn't you, didn't you guys already solve that for yourselves? Well, in India, we are going towards a single payer system for ha almost half of the population. That, yeah. At least that's the aim of the government. So there is no debate in India. Nobody criticized Ayushman Bharat in India. My yeah. point is that if India had a semblance of a non-left political outfit, mm -hmm. there would have been a debate. Where Where is the money going to come from? We are a poor country. Somebody would have asked this question. Nobody asked sure. the question. Sure. It was made a policy. Everything went forward. Now we have Ayushman Bharat. My point is, these things would be debated in the West. There are people who debate these issues in the West. In the US, They're, not in Europe anymore, right? In Europe, Canada have gotten yeah. all these yeah. things. They're more socialized. Yeah. So every country is redistributionist. 
but even within the redistributionist system which is created in every country yeah the basic operating framework is still by and large free market oriented but india's come into that now right the past 20 plus years i i would beg to differ really as an entrepreneur in india i don't think so india is any any in any way favorable to a free market economy we are we are trying to be i mean come on i mean we have come a long way but i think india is a very socialist country even the policies of this current government are very very socialist i mean they, they have they have just reduced the corporate tax rates for uh, uh, turnovers up to 250 crores uh, now before your users think what a crore is crore is basically 10 million i think it's 10 million right yeah it's 10 million the crore is 10 yeah. yeah yeah so it's 250 crores uh, up to turnover of 250 crores the corporate tax rate is going to be 25% now uh but why not above that i mean we want our country to become richer we want india to become a middle income country right, right. so we, we 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 need those giants that that the west created in the 60s to the 90s yeah through lower tax rates we are not doing that so that my, my whole point is that i'm i'm on let us assume i am on side x my point is that in india there is no politician on the side x everybody sure. is on side y and everybody the the political debate in india is not whether taxes should be x or y uh-huh. the political debate in india is bjp is fascist and you are secularism is fake in america there is not one debate there are multiple debates in america sure. that is that is a political system where ideas are discussed everything in america is not about uh, trump looking like a orangutan you know there are more things than that i mean i know bill maher made that joke about trump being an orangutan and stuff like that <laughs> but even on bill maher's show i know yeah. he's obsessed with trump now but if you go even a couple of years ago bill maher would have serious discussions you would have serious i mean you can follow conservative podcasts like ben shapiro or yeah. you can you even the guys of pod save america which is like a hardcore i love of obama podcast right uh-huh. they they have serious policy discussions it's not it, happening in india i mean i don't see it i mean have you seen arnab goswami i have but i i, I but like but these channels you're talking about are like uh like you know even ben shapiro and, and these other guys are not mainstream right they have their own like little network and and world in which they operate within so but they're bigger than the mainstream i, I mean in some some sense right i mean yes you are right in some sense they're more clickbaity than the mainstream for sure uh wh- whether or not they have the reach uh, or the or the authenticity of the mainstream is a different story but my question is within india like i mean I would assume, right? And and I and although I do know a good about India, I lived there for a few years. There's so many political parties. US doesn't have that many, right? US we're just Democrat Republican and maybe like a Green Party here and there, you know, like very few for India in this election I think it was like 8,000 parties were like fighting in this election, right? Something insane. We're like there's so many different parties. Are you telling me like most of these parties are all left and not, there's no like variation and thought or or debate or i i mean it, it seems very difficult to to fathom a country is, with 1.4 billion people that there's no sense of like debate about any of these things take all major issues in india whether it's on uh, reservations yeah every single political party has favored it there is no single political party that discusses that reservations need to be reduced there has to be opposing view too right i mean in yeah, a democracy i do as you yeah yeah there is no view 
no political party on paper officially says reservations are a bad thing or we need to reduce reservations by the way bjp increased reservations for economically backward classes in the last election the other political parties pretended to hate it but they all voted for it in the parliament no but my question is say say someone came out and said say a party came out and said okay we're against reservations we're going to pull it back would that party even survive until the next election they won't even survive two days yeah that's my point so but so that, that about doesn't political mean anything, expediency, right, right? So, this is really about political expediency. Well, then what's the point i don't well, know i mean then it's a cult it's a societal issue right about whether or not exactly. the, the, uh, it's, not, it's not necessarily a political issue per se because i'm sure there's people that believe that reservations need to be curtailed right like especially individuals i'm sure vast number of individuals believe that but exactly but what i'm trying to say yeah i i'm trying to say is in indian political outfits the only differences between the bjp and the others are on these issues bjp supports the construction of a ram mandir unequivocally and without any shame okay. and they say the courts will give the decision we'll follow the courts ruling yeah congress says yeah ram mandir is a good idea but we should not hurt anybody's sentiments so they keep pandering to the muslims and let the courts delay it right everybody else does not support the ram mandir movement other than the bjp okay right. that's one difference nothing to do with economics nothing to do with anything it's just a cultural issue sure bjp supports a uniform civil code every other political party does not support a uniform as you know in india we have uh, sharia for muslims yep. christian law for christians parsi law for parsis hindu law for hindus in the but civil that's only for civil side right that's not uh, yeah. criminal it's, it's like yeah. family law and things like that yeah so for that that that's the difference bjp wants to get the uniform civil code right on the cow issue there is no difference even the congress has uh, gotten most of the cow slaughter laws in india are actually enacted by congress so that also is a big mythology but is it actually also true that the cow slaughter provisions in the constitution itself it was uh, supposed yeah, to be they, they are in the directive principles there is something called the directive principles this is like a vision document this is where we aim to go okay. so there is cow slaughter uh, in there but but most of the local legislations were formulated by state governments i mean india is a federal polity yeah. so most of the laws are you know developed by the state state governments themselves so 95% or 96% of the cow slaughter laws were enacted by congress governments in the beginning <laughs> uh, years of india not by the bjp bjp just added a few tweaks here and there and added a few cow breeds here or there that's right. all they did right nothing else now another major difference between bjp and everyone else is bjp says article 370 and our 35a need to go everybody else this is something to do with jammu and kashmir yes, yep other than that there is literally no difference when it comes to policies yeah. major policies what is the official economic policy of bjp gandhian socialism and integral humanism <laughs> what is the official policy of congress nehruvian socialism i mean they've just given it a new name it's the same rubbish it's yeah. cow shit buffalo shit you just deal with a new shit yeah so what i'm trying to say i mean the other party bahujan samaj party they believe in socialism samajwadi party i mean samajwadi in hindi literally it, it means socialism socialism exactly samajwad means socialism so i'm just giving you all the main parties in india dravida yeah. munnetra kalagam they are all marxists like hardcore yeah. india is the only country that has an active marxist party i mean i don't know what the hell is happening in india trinamool congress is more left than the left yep <laughs> the national conference and the pdp in kashmir they are 
hardcore socialists all these people are socialists i don't know why bjp gets the honor of being called right wing and the bjp fun i mean bjp funnily enough even joined this so called conservative consortium in the world it was i was laughing my ass off i was like imagine them they are going to be sitting with republican senators over there and they're going to be like we believe in low tax rates and bjp will be like no 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 <laughs> it's so stupid it makes no all i'm trying to say is the depiction of indian politics is dishonest sure sure it's intellectually dishonest i'm not saying you can call them you can call them the orangutan wing of india i could care less but the point is it does not make it factually intellectually correct you look at the policies of bjp you would map them as a democratic party the blue democrats if sure. if it makes more sense the sure. blue democrats are usually they like uh, capitalism in most areas yeah. the blue democrats are not very open borderish or very pro immigration bjp is like that yeah. they're just the old school blue democrats and it's just a tragedy that what has happened is everybody needed a fascist or a evil guy right. that you know every society we want to say they are the fascist they are the right wingers they are evil the idiots in the west and i use this word idiots with full responsibility the idiots in the west they relied on their marxists in india who said these are our fascists and they're like okay and it's like a citation loop see in the entire citation loop only yeah. one person has to lie people don't realize that the people in the west are not lying they are just citing the yeah. indian native informant who is a liar or who yeah. is intellectually dishonest they are all assuming seems like a scholar has written 100 books has so many papers seems like a nice guy yeah and they just believe their lie and it is like i call it the jalebi cartel everybody is going round and round and round everybody cites each other and i mean 100 citations uh, look at google citation ramachandra guha has been cited thousands of times right. has to be a serious scholar i'm not saying he's a zero scholar but the point is if he calls bjp a fascist tell me they call bjp a fascist because bjp is against free speech who destroyed free speech in india congress yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there is no free speech in India even before BJP came. I mean, emergency was all in Indira yeah. Gandhi, who who so, destroyed free speech. So if you sit down with these people, and you know, I always play this game with my Caucasian friends or my friends in the West. I just yeah. sit down and tell them, define a fascist. Define what policies classify a person to be a fascist, and then they say, clamping down on free speech, jailing people for X Y Z, these laws, these laws, these laws. and i start congress, showing congress, them congress 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 <laughs> congress 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 and then they just say oh i hate you and then just walk away well it's because i think congress has been pilloried in the media as like this this bastion of of the saving light of india of secularism of humanism of this uh, that's keeping india from falling into the brink of hindu madness and rampaging like mobs which BJP apparently brings because they're more concerned with Hindu um uh, I guess people civilization I don't know what yeah. whatever to call it yeah, yeah it's a load of bollocks and you know what uh, the victim in this is not the BJP the victim in this is the truth yeah I don't care about the BJP I care about the truth and yeah. the truth is that there is no political party worth its salt in India I vote for the BJP because I have no freaking option in this country I mean the Congress is so bad, so I have to choose choose the lesser evil 
in in bjp and trust me it's more modi than bjp right now because people trust modi more than anything yeah. literally the whole country is literally just putting its bets on one human being yeah even the bjp has no credibility to be very honest and and this is the tragedy of india we have a broken system where we don't incentivize policy based debates you know since the day our parliament has put cameras on the level of debates in the parliament has nose dived really why because all the leaders are virtue signaling in the parliament instead of debating they are making speeches i don't want i listen to your speeches on a tv channel on a political rally i don't need more speeches at the floor of the house you need to debate bills you will be shocked some bills are passed with 30 seconds of debate this is the position of legislation in india and if a person like me questions this either the bjp tribe has a problem or the congress tribe has a problem basically nuance has died in india you have to pick a tribe and you have to go with that tribe no matter how horrendous that tribe is my thing is i refuse while i vote for the bjp i refuse to join them. yeah i i i think you broke up for a sec Did you lose connection krishal hello krishal oh there hey. i think i lost i lost you for a sec yeah no. yeah I, I totally, I totally agree with you, but I and I think this is not just the problem with India currently. I think it's globally, right? That we're we're getting to this place where we're really becoming pick a tribe. And like for example, left in India is, I mean, the U.S. is getting much, much more uh, polarized, just as the right is, right? And in between, yeah. everyone are just being forced to choose which of the two sides are you closer aligned with before we go in into this war between our our two our two communities, right? But the left in the U.S. is. If you say anything about, for example, let's be frank. If you say anything about Islam, you're Islamophobe. Even if you say the way Islamic countries treat women in their countries, you're considered Islamophobe by saying that it's inherently what they've been doing for years. You can't yeah, have I mean, this. Yeah, I just saw a gay pride parade where people were wearing the hijab. I mean, what the hell is wrong with white people now? Some white people. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, I don't want to sound uh, racist, so uh, I mean, I'm just trying to say it in a funny way. But I mean, I I told my white friends, I was like, "What is wrong with you people? Do you even realize what the hijab or the burqa? You know, it is like you know Hindu women saying, 'Oh, parda rocks, man. We'll wear the parda. We'll wear the ghungat.' Yeah, it, see, it's aggressive. No I have no issue with the hijab. I have issue with niqab and burqa, right? I mean, those things I think are super aggressive. For me, a hijab can be a simple decision, like a scarf over your head. I don't know. To me, that's not a bigger issue, um, unless it's forced upon you. I don't know. I, I see. Even if the burqa is not forced upon you, you want to dress up like Darth Vader. I have no problem. I mean, yeah, ninja, whatever. Right? You know. Yeah. So the, I have no issue with that. My issue is that we know it's not a choice. We know it's forced. Well, I mean, we know is, the fact it behind it. I mean, like, is it forced in the U.S.? Is it forced? I don't know. I, I mean, you, there are enough cases where women. I mean, you don't need to force, but you can force by abandoning the child at a young age. Sure. You can force a lot of ways. I mean, in America, it is not as bad, but in a country like India, I mean, I never saw burkas growing up. No. They have It's just exploded. It's exploded. I don't know yeah. where, how, why. I mean, Indian Muslims were the most, you know, inculturated people. They would wear Indian clothing. They would wear our. They would speak our languages. I mean, a Muslim in Maharashtra would speak Marathi, not Urdu. 
Yeah, it's changing. Yeah, this Ar- Arabization is my problem. Is the Arabization of Indian Muslims yeah. because that is not their native culture. You can follow Islam. I don't care. I mean, that's not my issue. My yeah. issue is the Arabization and the 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 the, the with the Arabization comes a very violent form of Islam, and that's my problem. And this this, this dishonesty, where where I see the Western left has gone bonkers. Yeah, no, they, they have not- gone bonkers. They got bonkers in a few areas. I think definitely in the in how they're engaging with Islam because now, it, it, if you're a Muslim, you're considered to be like you said, the oppression Olympics, the lowest of the low in or the most oppressed of all oppressed in the U.S. Next to like, if you're a black Muslim, you're the most oppressed person in the universe, right? Um, in, in 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 the U.S. And then a black Muslim female, either you're gay or transgendered, then you're like the most horribly oppressed person ever, right? So th- these are like, there are things that have become so sacrosanct in in our political discourse that it's even frowned upon to discuss it. This is why you have this concept of intellectual dark web. I've, I mean, you know, Sam Harris, Joe Rogan, and Jordan Peterson, and Ben Shapiro, and a bunch of these guys who will sometimes talk about things that are very controversial, like the idea of IQ and race, or whether transgendered individuals should be able to compete in sports um, based upon their inherent biology that early used, like if you're a man, born a man, become a woman, are you able to compete in female sports? We have this discussion, you're called transphobe, you're called this, you're called that. I mean, and, and I'm, a, I'm a very, very liberal man. Like I, I support free speech, gay rights, transgender rights, all this stuff. But even if I have these conversations with people, regular people and say, let's be nuanced, let's really talk about these things. I get I get called uh, conservative or this or that or Islamophobe. Like I remember I remember posting on my Facebook and talking about like uh, the BJP and and how like uh, they're not a fascist and this and that and they're it's actually like Western fascism, Eastern fascism, Indian fascism, uh, Indian nationalism is not the same. Hindu culture is different. You could not be like a, a terrorist in the Hindu sense because there's nothing to to shoot us towards terrorism. But I would have so many liberals attack me constantly being like, oh, you're just a, a right-wing supporter of Hinduism, you, uh, you're Islamophobe. And I'm like, no, you have to look at the history and look at the way these things have played out. The Arabization of Islam in most of the world is the biggest problem, not Islam necessarily all the time. Just in this case, the Arabization has caused tremendous violence. It's a particular type of, of Islam that's being this basically like a parasite killing all other diversity of Islam. And and we're not having a conversation about that. Yeah, in fact, I've been on record to state that I believe Indian Muslims are different from most Muslims in a large extent. They are very Indianized and they still have a huge influence of their native culture on them. And when it comes to the overall uh, pattern, I, I rate them far higher yeah. than <laughs> in a comparison. And uh, obviously to the hatred of uh, a certain section of the Hindutva crowd who are absolutely bigoted towards Muslims as people. Yeah. And and there is a section in the Hindutva crowd which is absolutely anti-Muslim and bigoted. And and I don't want to associate with them and I have never been Hindutva. I am very open about it. I yeah. am not Hindutva. I don't stand with them. I don't, I don't believe in hating every single Muslim because it makes no sense. Yeah. It is a stupid idea. And if you know, and every time you get these stupid arguments from the a certain section of the Hindutva side, oh, you have to behave like them. No, I can't behave like an asshole. I'm not an asshole. No. 
Yeah. No, I'm not, I'm not. I'm not going to be an idiot, and I, and I refuse to be part of that. And that's why people like me and uh, feel lost at times in yeah. the entire political discourse in India, because the entire discourse in India is so full of tribalism. And I mean, let us take the example of sports in the West. Like I, I'm an MMA fan, so yeah. there, I don't know how many people remember there used to be a fighter called Fallon, Fo- Fallon Fox or Fallon Fox. Basically, this was a man who changed uh, his gender and then it became a she so she came into the mma and she started fighting and she was whooping ass i'm sorry that's not okay yeah that, that's not on you can't do that you can't allow a ex biological male to basically have gender uh, replacement therapy and then come and kick women's ass you're yeah. seeing this uh, south african or who was that australian weightlifter going into oh, the yeah. women's division and going on winning <laughs> medals after medals and and the guilt ridden uh, women are like no you go girl i mean kya you go girl she's always she's only got to win all the time they, i mean this is not about bathrooms i don't care whatever bathrooms you want to use you use those bathrooms but in sports give me a break and if you say that you're called a transphobe yeah. uh, hello no i belong to a culture which is the only culture you morons on planet earth that officially has three genders yeah, yeah. <laughs> officially the indian republic recognizes three genders from day one hindu culture recognizes three genders from 5000 years yeah, i mean what right. are you teaching me about this you yeah. moron you don't teach me about this uh, we we have pandits who are uh, in andhra pradesh there are temples where the prohit or the pandit can only be a transgender person yeah it, 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 that's the crazy no and you're right and this is the the difficulty of having this conversation a lot of times with with people especially in in the west cuz this this issue becomes very very touchy is look we have to be compassionate to the fact that people undergoing this 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 transformation especially in the west where it's not nearly as expect accepted as much as maybe in india it's a traumatic time there's a lot more religious hatred anger they get treated differently and there we have to have compassion towards that right and and be open and 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 if you want me to call you know if if you consider yourself a woman i'll consider you a woman in in contexts of so will I. in so many different ways but yes. obviously like if i'm not attracted to a man who has become a woman who's now a woman i i i don't hold that against me and again it should be okay to say maybe because your history and your background your biology until recently whenever you had the gender transition you should not compete with people you in, in, in as a woman because they don't have the same advantages like men inherently have more testosterone more yeah. or better muscle fibers we're just we have we're built to be fuck sorry to cuss but fucking ferocious beasts we're literally created to bone be density. Yeah. bone density yeah bone yeah and 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 women they can't look most men can beat most women a small percentage of women can beat some men right it, it's just that that's just by like you're not going to find that many women are going to end up being 65 and like 300 pounds very few but you'll find much more men being that size so what i'm saying is basically we have to we have to be compassionate and maybe at some point when there's enough people that are trans female or i guess yes transgender female we can create a different league in which they can compete with each other and not just with with biologically born women you know it's it, it, the differential is vast no or they just compete in their own respective uh, original biological gender that's a, that's the only way out in this 
Well, I don't I think mean, that's the case because a lot of them are taking like uh, testosterone blockers, more estrogen. Their their yeah. body their body does change. It, so it goes this, through. It these, goes through. These are what Jonathan Haidt calls moral dumbfounding issues. You know, yeah, you're just morally morally confused. What do you do? I mean, I also sympathize with these people. I genuinely feel bad for a person like this. I mean, it's not. It's so unfair on the transgender person, and yeah. it's so unfair on all the women who are basically never going to win because yeah. that person is just by sheer physical advantages going to kick their ass. Right. And, and and this the I mean, recently John McEnroe got into a controversy about who was that? Serena Williams. I mean, Serena Williams in 2013 was on record that I cannot beat a man who was even a top 100 player. Yeah. And then Serene, then John McEnroe said she's the greatest female player, and that became an issue. And oh, yeah. beyond the point, I think what has happened in the West is, and luckily this is not the case in India. We still have real problems to deal with. Yeah. What happened in America or the West in general is these are what they call first world problems. When you run out of real problems, you create problems. Sure. These sure. are created problems, as if you know. I have you know. I remember some of my friends getting stressed because they had no stress. <laughs> I was like, what kind of a stress is that? That you have no stress. Be happy. I mean, yeah. become the Buddha. Just, just, just go meditate. And I think what the West is happening, right? What is happening in the West, this is my understanding, is a crisis of meaning and purpose more sure. than anything else. Sure. It is not, uh, see, when you are a poor society, then you have a meaning. Okay, Narendra Modi had a goal. Bathrooms for all. Housing for all. Now he has a goal. Water for all. I want to build roads. I want to give, give electricity. So, you know, the collective psyche of the nation becomes attracted to that goal. I mean, what is the collective psyche of the average upper middle class, middle class, spoiled? And these are all usually, you know, white kids. I mean, I've read enough data in this. These are most of these crises and most of these people shouting and yelling on the screens are not minority groups. Minority groups are poor, other than the Asians, obviously. Uh, everybody else has uh, real problems in their hands. They don't go around doing these things, you know, that you care, that words are violence. These are all spoiled white kids doing these weird things. So it's okay. The problem in India is different. In India, we have real problems and we are not solving them politically. And there, I mean, imagine, you know, this is the problem in India. There was the gun violence was there in America. Do you remember that? that march against guns that had happened in America last year. Yeah, yeah. There were people holding placards in Mumbai. Does that make sense? No. But there were people <laughs> holding placards in Mumbai. Saying what? Yeah. Like, we stand with no guns? Yeah, I mean, what the hell? India has strict gun laws anyways. What are you demanding, you morons? Yeah. You know, I... this, is, this is a certain elite in India. They are aping the West. And what I'm trying to say is, there are more people who have spare time in America. We are getting them in India too, with financial prosperity. Yeah. These placard holding morons in India who hold placards about American issues. What the hell? Why, why do I care what is happening in America? I mean, I can't change the policy there. Right, right. I mean, what, what am I going to do by holding a placard here? So, I mean, I mean, a few points that you brought up are interesting because like, yes, um, there are first world problems and that's primarily, you know, in the first world, like, I mean, even, the term itself is stupid, but the difference is also, I think, that the reason we can call it a first world problem is because in the U.S., problems are ghettoized, right? Like, 
Like in India, you see the problem every day. It's in yes. your face, staring yeah. you. It's not, you can't avoid it. You can't avoid yes. seeing poor people. You can't avoid seeing uh, star. Yeah, um, sorry guys, we've got some technical difficulties. As we're talking about first world problems, my my internet went down for a few minutes. So, um, no, as I was saying, Kishal, like I think in India, you see the problems firsthand all the time. Every day, it's in your face, it's staring you. In the US, one of the big problems is it's pushed away, like your suburbs, your cities, whatever issues you tend up having within like poverty or social economic issues tend to be pushed away into like ghettoized areas where like, where it'd be sometimes ethnic enclaves, sometimes social economic enclaves where people are, the problems that, that you're dealing with as a society still exist there, right? Like starvation, lack of food, lack of shelter, homelessness, all this stuff is there. Difference is we do a good job of sweeping it away. So it's not in our, our purview. And you guys in India have to deal with it constantly. So that's why I think a lot of times within the cities in the US, we can fight about these dumb, I'm not dumb, but issues that aren't as important to the survival of human beings at the very, very fundamental level that India and other developing nations have to deal with constantly. Yeah, well, all I can say is I'm more than happy to swap places. <laughs> yeah. Come deal with my problems. I'll deal with your problems. I, I, you know, I'll get stressed about how my water is not cold enough or warm enough. Right. <laughs> Here, people don't have running water, and 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 there are people complaining about those things. I, I always say this to everybody in the West. You know what? I'm willing to swap places. You can come here. I can go there. And you can deal well, with my problems. I'll deal with your problems. <laughs> yeah, but you lived in the West too. So, you know, I mean, like I, I've lived in India. You lived in the West. I mean, there are like everything in life. There's always sacrifice or uh, give and take. If you want if you want to have the industry and the growth and the, I guess the, the riches of the West, you lose things. You lose human connections all the time. You lose uh, senses of community. You lose... Uh, a purpose in some sense because your your purpose becomes something else it becomes making money or keeping keeping up with the joneses and and all these other things that necessarily don't make you happier but make you more palatable for the people around you i guess i don't know man i'm I, i'm someone who who believes that you know 95 percent of your life's issues can be solved with money so let us first solve the 95% and then we can deal about the 5%. Like, you know, Jim Carrey had a beautiful line in Liar Liar. Imagine he, he the, in today's politically correct America, he can never get away with it. Yeah. So his child, there was a famous scene in that, you know, he comes out and he, this is when he cannot lie, right? Yeah, yeah. So the son has a wish and the wish is granted, basically. So he's there. Son goes out and tells the teacher, you know, Mrs. So-and-so said beauty is inside, it is not outside. And Jim Carrey tells him, that's what the ugly people say, son. <laughs> so that's pretty much what i think yeah so in my case you know when people give me lines like you know money isn't everything you know in hindi we have this famous line bacche paisa to haato ka mail hai yeah and i always tell these people i'm a very dirty guy mai bahut maila aadmi hu mujhe apna sara mail de do give me all your money if you think money isn't everything well you know please live without it give me all you have the problem is i'm telling you the crisis in the west is not that they have money the yeah. crisis is now they have money they should find a new meaning in life and yeah. it's a crisis of meaning and meaning can be found without losing the money <laughs> i don't believe i mean I, I am a financially secure guy living in india i have not lost meaning 
Yeah. I have my meaning. I I try to do things. You know what my meaning is? I try to help the people who are not privileged enough in my country. Sure. That's how I found my meaning. That that was my calling. One of the biggest reasons I came back to India and I didn't never go went back to the West is I felt I have to give back to my society. Sure. Not that I owe it anything. I don't believe in all those concepts, but I believe it is my duty. Yeah. It is my duty towards humanity that i want to give back so there are multiple ways in which the people in the west can also do it it's not that and there are many people who do it it's not like they don't do it in the west right, there, right. Are, there are amazing christian charities uh, doing sure. amazing work in the west there is red cross and okay. there are other people too and then they are doing the same charities doing those dirty things in india of proselytization which yeah. they should not do they should stick that to their own people but my whole point is that what is happening in the west is a crisis of meaning and and i think what sometimes what happens is in this interconnected globalized worlds a lot of people living in the east tend to look at the people in the west and they get confused and they think their problems are, are our problems and the people in the west look at the people in the east and they try to superimpose their methods on our, our on our lives and this is where the whole mishmash happens i think people need to be informed more about cultural nuances cultural sure. understanding look at the case of nationalism in india like the word nationalist itself is so sullied in india that probably the moment you say nationalist in the west you know mm-hmm. you you get high i'll fuhrer you know <laughs> yes, kind of thing but in india you have narendra modi who said i am a nationalist i am a hindu but if somebody would have asked a follow up mr modi what do you mean by nationalism he would have said country first yeah and i have love for every man in my country and i will do anything to bring all these people out of poverty in my country does that mean concentration camps does that mean auschwitz hell no that's no, not no. what so modi's nationalism is maybe like a sort of a patriotism for someone in the west right but the problem is modi does not use the word patriotism he uses the word nationalism so here's where the language game comes in right so yeah. here's where in politics we have to use the language game theory and we have to be nuanced where the word nationalism means something totally different from modi and that's why in philosophy yeah when we have discussions the first line we use is can you please define certain terms for sure. me so that i know that you and i work on a common definition and a common understanding and then we have a common set of facts right and then we debate the problem is the debate in india and the west in india amongst bjp and congress people is hindutva for a hindu means hinduness yes. a bjp guy hindutva for a congress means hell fuhrer yeah there is a huge difference we are working of different definitions yeah but I, and i think the definitions are i mean obviously the definitions are very important and in this particular case it, i mean congress views i guess maybe the problem is they don't think of the inherent nature of what hinduism was anyway right a lot of times they congress is mischievous yeah yeah i, I mean and, and and my other point was i mean technically india can't be uh, uh can't be patriotic indians can't be you guys have to be patriotic right you guys worship mother india <laughs> patriotism is your fatherland so you want your motherland <laughs> no but in very interesting i mean uh, not to criticize savarkar i mean savarkar's hindutva was the concept of the fatherland he called it pitrubhumi oh that's right he but did. he mixed he mixed the pitrubhumi with the karma bhumi yeah. and punya bhumi concept so it's so messed up what, what i'm trying to say is even savarkar was influenced by some aspects of european nationalism right. but then he was like eh, this is too aggressive for me so i'll dilute it down with my culture right. with my cultural nuance 
but the thing is dishonest left wing people only talk about the fatherland they don't talk about the punya bhumi they they did not see how savarkar tried to mix the pitrabhumi with the punya bhumi yeah. they only raised the punya pitrabhumi and this is my problem when the discourse is based on dishonesty look i have enough things with golwalkar that can be criticized but sure. yes a bunch of thoughts had some extremely bigoted views but golwalkar himself said please don't publish that book even i don't agree with my own thoughts because people change over time That's the thing. Are we trying to say? Look at what has happened to this guy who lost uh, Harvard. his Harvard admission. Kyle Kulinski, this kid, sixteen years old. He said something. Sixteen. The yeah. kid has grown up. Are yeah. we trying? Oh my God! You know what, man? I am so lucky. I was raised in the non-internet age because yeah. I would have been such. I would have been in so much trouble. We did not have any sense. We would say anything. I mean, I mean, come on! In our culture, people talk about this. You know, there is this pathetic nickname even today in India called Kalu. Kalu means blacky. Black, yeah. It's such a racist surname or nickname that yeah. we give to our own people. We call them Kalu or Kalia. Yeah. We we know why we do it, but are we going to fire people because they did not have the nuance to understand it? Twenty years ago or thirty years ago? Are you crazy? So what? So what I'm trying to say is, this is we are changing in the age of the internet. We have to be very careful, even with our political views, and to impose Western political understandings on India is yeah. just grossly unfair. What has happened? The entire political discourse in India is even mediocre. Would be being charitable, right? No, and and I think. I mean, you you hit this on the nail. It's 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 not just it's not just the internet, and it, it, well, the internet is a big reason for this. Is we are no longer allowing people to change, and yes. and and we're forcing people to fit into an identity they might have had a few years ago, ten years ago, twenty years ago, for something they said. Their views would have changed, but we hammer them on this, right? So what that causes, I think, is a chilling effect. It keeps people from actually having. Pro- Maybe this is one of the reasons why, also in Congress, uh, or like you, you said, the video of not Congress but Parliament. Now they had the channel. People don't want to argue. They don't want to have a debate because they'll be hooked into a position. And yes. once they're hooked into a position, they'll the rest of their career or whatever it is, they're that. And the problem with this is we have to be, we have to be nuanced. Has to come back not only in our political dialogue, but in our just the way we engage with the world. And 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 we have to stop labeling everyone that disagrees with you as a racist, as a nationalist, as a fascist, as a bigot. That people are nuanced. That you can you can have a view that that is racist, but you have other views that aren't. And we can engage with people at multiple levels. We are complex beings. We are complex beings, and maybe we don't know everything. And we don't realize and a lot of things are just social conditioning and not yeah. everybody is you know woke enough to use this new term i mean i'm come on what are you going to do and this is my problem this this the and by the way this is not just on the left in india it's on every side yeah in, in india you if you don't uh, you know bow down on the altar of uh, lord narendra modi is not good enough for some people too so yeah. the, the, the and and it these things happen when you destroy nuance when you 
attribute malintent as a by default mechanism to the right. other you know the the famous handlens razor never yeah. attribute to malice what can be explained by ignorance or right. stupidity yeah. it was such a beautiful line and look at and the so, rule on social media is always attribute malice yeah. to, to everything that can be explained with stupidity and ignorance the default mechan- how do we deal with someone on facebook and twitter or instagram if they make a political statement or a social statement we by default go nazi yeah fascist the other side will be Racist, like oh yeah. libtard yeah yeah it's a libtard right. i mean since when did liberal become a bad word or prostitutes or all these yeah. other terms yeah, that so we it's so irritating yeah and i i refuse to join yeah. this cesspool of mediocrity and intellectual vulgarity i will I, not I be agree. that's why i openly say i do not belong to any tribe i reject all tribes the only tribe i want to be a part of is the tribe of nuance and sanity i don't agree with any i am happy in my corner if that means that i as a podcast host do not become uh, you know i mean i don't know if people notice this my titles of my podcast are not clickbait Yeah I refuse to even use clickbait titles for my podcast. Do you think I cannot have this discuss? Like I'll give you an example. We dissected Hasan Minhaj's Netflix program. Yeah, yeah. You and Sham. Right? Yeah. I myself Sham and Anurag did. Yeah. I could have easily put a title Kushal Mehra Anurag Saxena and Sham destroy, destroy Hasan Minhaj <laughs> and I would have gotten so many more views. Yeah. I refuse to do that. i said a dissection because that was literally a dissection yeah. minute by minute i still have my notes where i literally write at 17 minutes and 37 seconds he starts saying this i don't want to join that club because if i join that club maybe i'll get maybe i'll get hits on my podcast maybe i might might even make some money off of it i refuse to join that because yeah. i value my integrity and my intellectual honesty and that's why i created that podcast I did not create it because I, I don't make money from that, yeah. and I don't care because I am, you know, I'm satisfied with whatever I do in my professional life. Sure. So for me, my podcast was literally a platform where we discuss the truth, whether it's the political truth, whether it's a philosophical truth about ethics, about morality, about everything. What is happening is the overall discourse is now. either this or that either right. you support everything narendra modi says as a package or you support everything rahul gandhi says i don't i vote for narendra modi i will never vote for rahul gandhi or the congress yeah. but that doesn't mean if tomorrow rahul gandhi says gravity is true i'm not going to oppose him for the heck of opposing him or i'll be like you have mal intentions you actually don't mean to say gravity is true you actually mean something else so i'm not going to agree with you right so i think you hit one thing right off the bat which is correct which is never attribute malice to anything that can be attributed to stupidity or ignorance yeah. and people do it all the time right and the second thing which which i actually i, I live my life for that principle along with steel manning right always give if you're going to have a disagreement or argument or discussion always give the other person the best argument of theirs that you can right those two things if you can get past those two the the level of discourse jumps up considerably from what it is and just like you you know the part of the reason i started this podcast is is to engage with the truth bring out ideas that normally are not discussed by general indians or people in the west i want to inform people about this 
vast 5,000-year culture, these ideas, these traditions, these histories, mythologies that people don't know and from a perspective that they can learn as opposed to clickbait. I, yes, I could have I could have brought Nathan Schreeder on. Nathan Schreeder destroys the Marxist feminazis who, who I mean, what, what's the point of that? That's not, no one gets destroyed. These are nuanced dialogues. And we all have different positions and we need to engage with it properly so that we, we actually stop dumbing the discourse down and bring it to a point where we can start trying to meet each other in the middle somewhere. And I think, you know, social media is the biggest problem. Facebook and Twitter, and I yeah. just read a book by this author called Jerome Lanier. Where yeah, yeah, he wrote that, uh, Why You Should Delete Your Facebook Account. Yeah, or... so in that, he raised the most amazing, so I'll read it for your viewers. Yeah. So he basically says, these are, he says, A uh, is for attention actors. So basically traits of the social media platform. So I'm just reading it off. Yeah, yeah. So he says, A is for attention acquisition leading to asshole supremacy. <laughs> B is for butting into everyone's lives. C is for cramming content down people's throats. D is for directing people's behavior in the sneakiest way possible. Yeah. E is for earning money from letting the worst assholes secretly screw with everyone else. And F is for fake mobs and faker society. Right. Tell me, is this not a, if this is not the true description of social media, Twitter and Facebook, basically, what 100%. is it? 100%. 100%. And you know, he was sympathetic to podcasts, by the way, in the book. He's like, that is the one space that has not been sullied. But I'm very, very wary that they might sully that beautiful space too, where there is nuance happening. But this is so true. And if you talk, and this is why political discourse is getting destroyed. Because political discourse went to social media. And yep. it destroyed it. I'm not saying social media is a net evil. I still disagree with the author. I believe social media is a net positive because it has given a, a voice to millions across the planet. Sure. It has given a voice and it has democratized this course. What it has done is social media giants have used a very wrong framework to build the platform. So, yeah. you know, guys like Tristan Harris who are saying we need to question their ethics, not shut them down. If right. Once we question their ethics, they'll change their algorithms, which will become more about not the negativity bias and more about other things and more about uh, different kinds of nuances. I think what we need to do is tweak the social media algorithms, then shut their accounts. Unlike the author, the author says you should just get off it. I say don't get off it. There are other tools. Just restrict your time to 30 minutes. Just scan whatever is happening and get over it. But what I'm trying to say is it is harming political discourse and this is a biggest problem in India where even this guy in his book, you know, this guy, Gerard Lanier yeah. says about right wing disco, rise of right wing in India. And I was like, even this guy does not get it. Even he fell for the same agenda driven, unnuanced, unbalanced drivel yeah. of the Indian left. And he fell for it. And even the best fall for it. The problem is they are eventually going to rely on one person who is so-called authoritarian version right. or you know and and th this is the classical problem of you know you know the halo effect that you know anybody who has a, a sort of authority or is a known figure in india and if if that it's like you know noam chomsky's view on foreign policy is taken seriously by a few people yeah, because noam chomsky and his uh, theory of grammar and linguistics yeah. was valuable so i have to listen to noam chomsky in politics and foreign policy where he makes no sense at all no he's all over the map he's all over the map he but but i mean your points again well taken to the fact that i mean while social media itself is 
in some sense, a net positive. And I do agree, it's given voice to a lot of people. I don't think there'll be any incentive for anyone to change the way it's done now because it's monetized to a point. And this is, again, this is capitalism to, the good comes with the bad of capitalism in this sense, right? People are making money. They'll keep making money. They'll build these entire edifices on top of the structure that was originally built. No one's going to go out underneath and break the structure. No one's going to do that. True. And in that case, capitalism will do its magic. And eventually, I mean, as far as Jonathan Haidt is concerned, he's clearly clear. He's basically showing a correlation and causation between suicide rates amongst young women in America and social media usage, especially among young girls. The suicide rates are skyrocketing. And most of the reasons are my photos don't get likes, etc. Eventually, this will become a societal problem in the West in 10 years where they will force the social media companies. So what is going to happen is a simple thought experiment. Somebody had suggested. It'll happen in Europe, for sure. They are mulling the fact of removing likes from a Facebook page and a Twitter Twitter, uh, tweet. So imagine if you remove the likes, then what is the incentive to put that photo? Because why do we put that photo? It's because people like it. Yeah. You see what I'm trying to say? Sure, sure. A very simple tweak like that, it was suggested by someone. I think he was a philosopher or a scientist, I don't remember, on a podcast I can't recall, where he said, think about this scenario. If Instagram removes the like and share option, you can follow people, but you can't like them, you can't share them. So I guess the the question that would pop up in the US is going to be, is this prohibiting free speech? And the answer would be yes. Making the companies do it. No, 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 regulation. No, no, no. What I'm saying is the government can't force the companies to do it, right? The companies have to do it themselves because the moment you have the government say the first, our First Amendment protects intrusion from the government from this, right? So the companies have no incentive to do it because every time you click, it causes their algorithm to learn more and and send you content and do this. It's 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 an industry in itself, right? So especially in the U.S., the difficulty is going to be. That because we adhere to this idea of uh, as close to a free market capital, I think U.S. is probably closer to that. I get it. Us, right in so the world. This has to be a societal pressure to the tech companies where you know people like Tristan Harris, uh, Tristan yeah. Harris are doing fantastic work. I think General Lanier has also contributed yeah. to this, and there are many others who are contributing to it. But I think that this is a more of an ethics and a moral problem within the within the uh, you know tech industry and. And I, I am worried about the after effects of, uh, you know, these technologies on Indians. Obviously, sure. I care about people in America, too. But I mean, primarily living in India, I can only care primarily about people in India. So I definitely feel that, you know, these these companies are in a moral dilemma because they are not just tech platforms because they are behaving like publishers yeah. because they, they selectively ban content and uh, they clearly have ideological bias because yeah. if they did not have ideological bias, why would Twitter you know, delete or ban suspend accounts, which I have make some, which let's say Twitter uh, suspends an account that says uh, there are only two genders. Right. They, they, they have a clear cut policy now yeah. about that. So that's an ideological statement. So to, to say Twitter is neutral is not fair. No. So if they are not neutral, then they are no longer a tech platform because right. a technology platform would be neutral. They don't care what comes as long as they don't call to violence. Right. That That is the only no go zone. Now, if that's not the no-go zone, then they are a publisher. And if they are a publisher, then they are liable for every single view shared on their platform. And if they're liable for that, then they'll shut down anyways. 
Yeah, I, I think I, I mean I think they label themselves a media company as opposed to like anything else, right? Um, just because it gets around. If they're, uh, I mean, I think there's other legal issues which I'm not fully cognizant of because I'm not a tech attorney. I, yeah. Yeah, but I, I hate uh, to say this, but if they don't fix the problem themselves, they'll be regulated. Well, I mean, I, they're definitely going to be regulated in Europe. In the U.S., it's going to take a while. Our current FCC, you know, is kind of a a little bit uh, all about like wild wild west there. So let them do what they're going to do. So I mean, well, it's it's a problem that I I think you're right. Over time, that has to be dealt with. I don't know how India is dealing with it because um, do they no, have? My worry is because I'm trying to connect it to Indian politics. These tech giants are trying to affect Indian politics, and to me, it's a foreign invasion of a sort yeah. because it's a foreign company trying to create problems in my country's politics. Trying to change the discourse in my country, and that's a national security problem. It's a uh, it's sure. a problem, of, and that should be taken seriously by our government. In fact, I did a podcast on it where one of my friends and who's is a he's a known thinker, national security expert in India called Abhijit Ayer Mitra, uh-huh. and Abhijit has filed a police complaint against Facebook in India wow. for interfering in Indian elections, and uh, he's going to pursue that case for a long time. and we are trying to convince the bjp to you know go after facebook and twitter where at least they have to adhere to indian laws if anything else adhere to right. indian laws and respect our sovereignty because these companies just behave like you know they are, and they are like monopsonies they are you know they have a absolute monopoly over the discourse because today if i want to get off twitter i don't have any other option no and the market is lopsided so these are issues and that's why i'm connecting it to indian politics uh, these companies are slowly but surely affecting indian politics in a very weird way and if, especially the bjp is going to lose the game in the long run right and i as a bjp voter i'm irritated with the bjp that they are not taking it seriously because they see the short term benefit that they are winning right now but the entire platform the twitter facebook platform is totally the the hiring and the control in india is totally pro congress yeah. they went i mean how do i know just look at the tweets of the people who work there and yeah. you will know i mean just dig up their old tweets which they have deleted they they, they, they don't get it they work in twitter there is a thing called archiving yeah. <laughs> so I mean, they, I, I, all their tweets were dug out wasn't there a controversy just literally like a year ago with jack dorsey when he was holding up break the brahmin brahminical patriarchy brahminical patriarchy and 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 these are the problems, right? You have people like Dorsey, and I'm sure a large part of his staff and people that work in India that have no sense about what India, or for for that matter, anything outside the West, what their views are on on things and how how intricate and how dynamic these political issues and social issues are. That there's just not one side to this. So this is a problem, and this is another you know imposition of Western ideas and Western thought policing. on india where you know we have to follow these weird rules created yeah. by these foreign enterprises and we have to follow them for what you know i'm not saying all their rules are bad or all their rules are good what i'm saying is as a sovereign nation if they yeah. enter a sovereign nation like india they have to follow our rules they are blatantly playing policing uh, playing police police with our politics which i personally don't appreciate as an indian citizen i believe the indian parliament needs to legislate and control these companies regulate these companies if they don't do it voluntarily the so indian let me ask parliament this question. then do you think at 
most of these, most of these companies, Facebook, Twitter, they're Western companies usually run by like some uh, a white person, a white man, um, and they have like a, a structure that's very much built in the Western world. Do you think there's any sense that when these companies come into places like India, they come in with the hubris about we know better than first of all you locals um, because you're either third world or whatever it is, and we're the in a better place to tell you how to regulate yourselves on our systems or anything like that would is do you think there's any element of colonial i think in, i think maybe a little bit of colonialism but in the case of jack dorsey or uh, who's that guy of the facebook guy mark zuckerberg, zuckerberg i yeah. think they don't know math much man i think they just rely on whosoever is their native informant in this case and in this case it's the people who work for twitter and facebook in india and they are of a particular ideological bent and you have to understand more congress the bjp was never good at this but the congress has been very good at placing people in places of importance who are of their ideological bent or who are their co-travelers or fellow passengers in this okay. journey okay. the bjp is a very in immature nascent political outfit that has formed in 1982 the bjp has just literally gotten power for the third time the bjp needs to develop the art of you know building co-passengers placing people in important areas who can create a counter to these situations right now in india the establishment to yeah. be very particular is still congress yeah the establishment is your judiciary bureaucracy your media your uh, pop culture all of these things they yeah. are pretty much still congress the masses are bjp but the establishment is still the old guard so, and we need, we need to realize that that to change that the bjp has to support and plant people strategically yeah in multiple areas you don't need to do it blatantly but you have to do it with subtlety i think the bjp has done a very poor job at that i think they'll do it in this term and the following terms because it comes with ruling for a while see sure. getting used to the idea of sitting and governing a nation takes time to get used to yeah. bjp will take time to get used to it they've done it at state government levels where they've been like in gujarat you know for 20 25 years so the bureaucracy is pretty much and the establishment is pretty much in control at a state level yeah. but at a national level it's a different ball game i think it will happen in the next decade or so and that's when we'll see a true balance and ideological balance and it's starting to happen if you notice in the first term of modi yeah. did you see the amount of slightly pro bjp messaging movies that came out in bollywood oh, of course of course so like, it, it's subtle like, it's happening what's the one uh uri what uri Uri, 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 yeah, 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 uh, Uri. Uri, yeah, Uri, that, uh, definitely that one. And there was quite a few that came out. I think there. So, so that's what I'm trying to say. These things happen with subtlety. This, yeah. these things happen when, you know, when see Bollywood will flip where they believe the power is. Bollywood right. has no ideals. <laughs> they right. will go wherever the power is. Now, when Bollywood sees, you no, know, this guy Vodhi is going to stay here a while, then they will invest in movies which are of a particular type. Sure. Once you have that, the pop culture gets affected. Then the young kids who are watching those movies start getting oh okay. So imagine a guy like Vivek Agnihotri suddenly starts making movies like Tashkent Files, who have yeah. done decent business, where he mocks secularism. Right. In a scene, in a movie, he's mocking Indian secularism. So can you imagine this happening before two thousand fourteen in oh, India? Oh, no, definitely not. 
definitely not but it happens now when they believe okay i have some political backing now so if shit hits the roof i yeah. i will be protected because it's still a very semi feudal society india you right. need protection right. this is not like west uh, western nations where there is some law and order in india you still have a very feudal hierarchical system right so these kinds of investments in india are still at its very nascent stage give see india is not even a middle income country to be very right. honest see in the next 10 to 15 years i think india will be middle income you will see a sea change in india india will be so much more mature in these departments india will be far more you know people you'll see far more people suing each other than lynching each other law and order will be far better in india because eventually what will happen is when you will have more people who are financially stable right they'll like where is the state why aren't there enough cops why aren't there enough judges you know people will start questioning well doesn't india have the largest middle class in the world uh in terms of of uh, just sheer population and percentage yeah but who cares it doesn't matter right i mean it's, still, does- it's it doesn't matter in india look at the uh, i mean i recently shared an article on my facebook page where india's police to citizen population ratio is one of the yeah. worst in the world it is it is like it's like number 1 i think in the world it's just like pathetic but you know the interesting part is i i tend to have this conversation with people and i say look half the time you attribute like problems to criminal violence or or whatever it is that you you should be attributing to the lack of police ability to control these situations right not They half just, the time it's 80 to 85% of the time yeah i mean i'm 100% sure about that. It's just terrible. First of all, have, have anyone that goes to India could look at the shape of the police officers. Half these guys can't even walk down the street like without without panting, right? Like it just there's no level of high level of like inability. Like there was this video I remember watching where seven police officers could not or seven or eight police officers could not take down one white man um who was yelling hur- hurling abuses at them, calling them names, and literally they couldn't take him down. and it's just this lack of training that it's like here in America you might have a, a mob of 10 people but one police officer with a gun is no one will approach this guy right first of all that police officer will have a gun if not yeah. a gun he'll have a taser yeah. in india police officers have a normal Lati. stick lathi danda i mean we we are so abysmally uh, you know under policed and the cops don't have any equipment imagine when that kasab thing had happened 2611 had happened the yeah. cops did not have proper bulletproof vests their guns were misfiring and the terrorists had state of the art guns and vests so yeah. it's a terrible tragedy our cops have such high suicide rates they are overworked they work 48 hours continuously at times yeah. it's so inhuman the way we treat our cops yeah. they are they then they, 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 they at, i mean you go to local police stations you know how cops treat you they take bribes i have seen yeah, yeah. personally in my life to feed the prisoners this is a fact of life yeah because the prisoners can't be fed because there is no canteen inside the police station It's imagine terrible. the condition of this country and then we talk about big things and then you know then i listen to indians talking about we are the sone ki chidiya abe kahe ki sone ki chidiya get a reality check you are a developing nation where you have all the possible problems you have in a third world country i mean just freaking get real and you know to say this doesn't make me anti national i love my country too i love my people too i want india to become better yeah 
but and this is the problem with indian politics the, our discourse imagine a article comes in a newspaper live mint and there is no hashtag police reforms yeah there is no trend on twitter about police reforms everybody is believe, you know busy with cheap recreational outrage this is the politics of the world and this is the politics on social media to and that's why i i believe that the future of indian politics lies through serious discussions off facebook and twitter yeah. where there will be some people who will start pushing politicians on these issues yeah that, that that's my hope and if it doesn't happen it doesn't happen man what can i do i mean i tried my best i try my best i try to talk about issues through my podcast i go to other people's podcasts and yeah. try to raise real issues i try to be as fair as i can i'm not saying i'm perfect i might have my own biases i might have said bad things in my life but i can only do as much as i can and i consciously try to become better on a daily yeah. basis no i mean your podcast has has been fantastic you've done a really good job with with bringing a lot of issues to light and bringing a good amount of not only scholars but but big people like obviously a, a vivek agnihotri you've had a, a few people on there like that brought a lot of attention to ideas that don't get proper attention um and, and and that to me is like a great service you're doing a great service to to your community and and, and to indians there and and you're actually bringing a lot of international cuz i remember you had also someone from canada right uh from from mcmaster's university or something like that who was no uh, from york university he's york. a professor yeah. he's teaching right now in mexico city i think tech de monterey he's a phd okay. professor yeah like talking about postmodernism and jackson i mean and jordan peterson and yeah. you know so you're bringing a lot of different ideas i think to your listeners um which is very very important man i mean i i wouldn't under under underplay what you're actually providing to to the market there and i think you got to keep doing it you know it's you know i i think we've been talking now almost 3 hours yeah. <laughs> it's and i i've totally enjoyed it it's been great um i've learned quite a bit because uh you know obviously you have a a depth of knowledge in in india and 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 politics that i i barely just started scratching so um you know it's one of the things i'm glad i brought someone like you on to talk about indian politics we i've been trying to avoid politics per se on the podcast just because like part of me felt like first of all i'm not as competent to talk about like indian politics i i know it but i'm not super competent about it um and i wanted to really focus on more of the traditional ideas theories and kind of bring that to the modern world but it, i'm glad i did this cuz i think it, i think having you both first as a charvaka and then uh, in your political world you're bringing a nuance to the table that um that hopefully my my listeners my 25 listeners or whatever it is <laughs> that'll grow over time will 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 uh, appreciate and you're and i love what you're doing so thanks Thanks a lot man it was a pleasure to talk to you and uh, hopefully we can do this uh, in the future too Yeah yeah any time man I mean you know, any time if you want me on yours or we'll do something else coming up um I'm I'm supposed to talk to Sham sometime soon on uh, and do something like that so uh yeah I mean uh, one of actually one of the things I would love to do actually and you might be perfect for this is uh have one of these debates discussions where I can bring uh maybe a Jaina or a Boda on and yourself and having vedant in and talk about a particular like you know issue of epistemology or sure. uh, interesting thing like that just to bring that a little more of that that vada that we used to have in the past back in I would be more than happy uh, that 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 would be something that I'll be more than happy to do yeah so I would love to do that so yeah uh, so kushal like thanks if 
what I'll do is I'll link you. I'll link up your your podcast and your website and all this to to ours and um, and have people come listen. Do you have anything else you want to maybe end off saying? No, man. I'm I'm just happy to have this discussion. I mean, uh, I just hope that everybody who watches this, you know, gets to understand that you know life is beyond the binary yes and no system and. Uh, I just hope more, you know, your podcast grows and uh, hopefully more and more and more people listen to more podcasts and we have 50 more podcasters of Indian origin yeah. or Desi origin. I mean, that's all I hope. I mean, there are the brown pundits are there. I mean, yeah, I'm there, Sham is there. Yeah. yeah, you're there and there are, you know, a few more out there. You know, I just hope more and more people start doing this. So thanks a lot for calling me. All right, man. Namaskar. Thank you so much. And we'll, we'll keep in touch. All right. All right. Take care.